At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Very different kind of time suck topic today. Ward motherfucking Hall. Who is he? If you're new to the show, this topic could not be less representative of the kind of topic we typically cover here. He is not a known historical figure. He is not a cult leader, not the center of a conspiracy, not a serial killer. I'm 99.9% sure uh, he did lead a great life. And I think we can all learn from his example. He is my grandfather, my mom's dad. He uh, was a great man whose story I'm proud to share. And he passed away this past December, early in the morning of December 23rd, with my mom and his wife, Betty, by his side after getting up to use the restroom. He sat down, closed his eyes, and that was it. My mom said it was like a light switch just turned off. He was 88. Shortly after his passing, our Space Lizard Patreon supporters who vote on two topics each and every month here at Time Suck, uh, they voted his name up the topic board to the top spot. I was shocked. Now he is part of the catalog. I'm glad they did. I've mentioned his advice in the past on the show, and they wanted to hear more, uh, wanted to know who he was. So get ready for a little hero worship, Meat Sacks. Hail Nimrod and hail Papa Ward. Uh, was my grandpa Ward a perfect man, undeserving of any criticism? No, none of us are. He could be jealous. He could be rude. He be grumpy, especially when the slots were kicking his ass at the tribal casino. He could be a little controlling, a little snippy from time to time with my grandma Betty. But I never saw them fight, even though they were married for over 60 years. Uh, Papa Ward had his faults, but they were heavily outweighed by his good deeds, qualities, his character, uh, was Papa Ward a better man than most? Uh, yeah, sure shit was. And I don't say that just because I'm blood. I have plenty of other family members who I also love, who I would not give the same glowing review. <laughs> he was, as the cliche goes, a good man, a really good man, the kind the world could always use more of. He was a good dad, a good granddad, uh, a good husband, neighbor, friend, veteran. Who was Ward Hall? What made him great? That's what I hope to lay out here today. I'm going to pepper in lots of little stories about the man he was uh, this week, who he was, how he treated others. And also, because this is still time suck, I'm going to provide some historical and geo-targeted context for his life. Let's learn about Idaho as well today, the state no one ever really cares about. Uh, the state that is actually more than potatoes and racist and anti-government paranoid people. Uh, today on this very personal, glad I got to spend some time reflecting on one of the most important and influential people in my life edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Step inside the circle, you curious bastards, and grab some hands. Uh, Welcome to the cult of the curious. I'm feeling extra excited for the future of the cult this week. Focusing on my grandfather has been uh, healing for me. Uh, It's recentered me, reminded me of, uh, you know, why why I'm here. What we're doing here is special. Not that I forgot. I was just behind the scenes, you know, letting uh, maybe the minority, little small slice of trolls, negative Nancys out there uh, get to me more than they should. Uh, Instead of focusing on all the positivity, my grandpa would consider that kind of thought weak-minded, I believe. So I'm knocking that shit off. Uh, Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, glory be to Triple M, recording in the Suck Dungeon out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, the city where Papa Ward took his beautiful bride, my grandma Betty, on a honeymoon back in 1957. 
And now I'm recording an episode down the street for, from where they undoubtedly had a lot of honeymoon sex. You know they did. Just two horny kids in love. Uh, just knocking it out. <laughs> and yes, I'm talking about my grandparents. Uh, it's only weird. It's only weird if you make it weird. Uh, still not quite ready to promote any stand-up tour dates, but uh, those are coming. I feel like it's, it's getting close, right? The, the things are opening up. It's exciting. Uh, what is happening pretty soon is a real live scared to death show. Uh, April 22nd, 6 p.m. Pacific time at looped.com, a Thursday night recording from the scared to death studio. Uh, Going to be interactive. Loop has some uh, looped, excuse me, has some really cool features. Uh, I'll have more details soon. Just plant the seed now. Just set your calendars now. Uh, turn off, turn all the, all, all the lights off that night. Enjoy some horror with Lindsay and I, Joe and Logan going to be working production. The script keeper, Zach, uh, also might be help uh, helping produce that show. So set the date. A uh, very cool time suck striper inspired to hell with the devil t-shirt in the store at badmagicmerch.com right now. Think about how much fun it would be to have that song stuck in your head all day long because you're wearing a to hell with the devil t-shirt. Oh, nice. Uh, all kinds of fun stuff here at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, when you're not checking in on the store, I hope you're playing the Time Suck Trivia game on the app. A reminder that the March Bad Magic Productions charity is the USC Shoah Foundation, giving them 12500 bucks. Thanks for helping us make a donation to that important charity, uh, sfi.usc.edu. Link in the episode description if you want to learn more, want to donate more. Uh, and you can check out the new charity page on the Time Suck app and learn about all kinds of charities. Uh, it lists out all the charities we've donated to uh, with a link to each charity, a little description of who they are. So that's exciting. Uh, more excitement coming on the app soon. The order of the suck tab should now be live. So I say soon, soon for me recording in, you know, when I'm recording, when this episode comes out, should be right now, present tense. So uh, make sure and update your app. Look for that uh, order of the suck tab. That is the uh, suck as an S, you know, little acronym, Society of the Understanding of Critical Knowledge, ex quo uberibus. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com to the store there starting March 15th. That's the day this episode comes out. Sign up to receive one of our Time Suck Freemason type stickers. They'll cost $5 to cover, cover shipping and handling. Uh, you can put it up on in your business, you know, in a, in a prominently displayed place to let fellow meat sacks know to come support that business. Each business eligible, eligible uh, to buy one sticker for their business. If you have multiple locations, just email us, bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. We'll sort it out. Uh, once you receive your sticker or stickers, stick them in a visible location, uh, then email a picture of where you placed your sticker to uh, to bad bojangles, excuse me, at timesuckpodcast.com with order of the suck as the subject. All of these uh, notes too in the Time Suck app. If you're like, wait, what did he say? The easiest way, go to the Time Suck app and you can download the show notes for any episode, including this one. You'd be like, oh, okay, here's all the links. Here's exactly the language. Uh, you include the name of your business, physical address, phone number, short description of what your business offers in the email. And then other suckers will be able to find your business in the cool little map feature of this uh, new function of the app. We're very excited about it. Be sure and update your app on or after, again, uh, the day this comes out the 15th. Really excited to support small suck businesses right now. Okay, enough announcements. Time for me to suck my grandfather. Uh, so why did I and do I uh, look up to my grandpa, my mom's dad? One of the things that made him great to me was his devotion to family. Uh, one Christmas several years ago, maybe 2015, 2016, uh, like so many other Christmases, I was hanging out in the living room of my pop ward in Grandma Betty's house in Riggins, Idaho. 
not far from the high school that I graduated from, the high school my mom graduated from, and the one that my grandma Betty also graduated from. Uh, I spent so many Christmases, Christmas Eves, that little house, so many days overall there. I once laid on my back as a newborn baby on that living room floor, uh, listened to the ticking of the same clocks that are still on the walls, still ticking today, uh, played on that floor as a toddler with my great-grandparents, and now my kids have done the same with theirs. Uh, My great-great-grandfather, Frank Berman, the old Swede, uh, once lived on that property in the bunkhouse out back that he helped build. Uh, He also helped uh, build the two-bedroom, one-bathroom until about 20 years ago when a second bathroom was added main house with his son, my great-grandfather, John, not long after they immigrated to America from Sweden. Hangy-bangy, oofta, oofta. My family is exactly where my joking about the Swedish language comes from. Uh, Great-grandpa John and his wife, my great-grandma Stell, a dirty Norwegian. He loved to tease for being Norwegian. He picked up in Minnesota on the way to Idaho, raised their kids there, my grandma Betty and her sister Ruth. Uh, my grandma Betty still lives in her parents' old home now, the one uh, her grandpa helped build. She moved away for, um, you know, her, part of her younger life, but then moved back to help her mom in her final years. I say moved away. She moved like, you know, half a mile across town. Uh, how interesting and rare is that? That she's 81 years old. She makes uh, sure the lawn is taken care of the same lawn she once played on as, as a kid or like 70 years ago. Uh, the lawn my mother and aunt, you know, played on when they were kids. Uh, the lawn where I played or my children have played, still play. I've only ever felt like my heart was really connected to one piece of actual land, one piece of property. And it's that one. Uh, I have no parental home equivalent. Like we moved around quite a bit when I was a, when I was a kid. Uh, altogether, I added it up. I lived in 10 different places before I graduated high school, went to three different grade schools in two states, five different houses in Riggins, one outside of town in nearby uh, Pinehurst, little community, three different apartments over a few years in Anchorage, Alaska, and an apartment for two years in Las Vegas. Then in college, I spent a year in each of two different dorms, then in four different houses, and then after college, lived in an additional seven uh, apartments and houses. So I've called 23 different places my home. And in two decades of stand-up, I've spent so, so many nights away from wherever I've called home and hotels across the world. And throughout all of that, the Riggins house, uh, that one property, always there for me. Uh, a place for me to return to and recenter is built around 1950, my grandma thinks, you know, by my great-grandpa and great-great-grandpa. Six generations of my family have broken bread on tables under that roof. Six generations have slept in beds there, have eaten walnuts, fallen off the old black walnut tree out back. I've played, you know, a lot of kids have played my family by the old ditch that runs through the property and through town. Uh, You know, a lot of people laughed, cried, built lives, lived lives there. And anyway, that one Christmas several years ago, I was there with my wife, Lindsay, Kyler, uh, Monroe, and my only sibling. My sister Donna was there with her two kids, Emerson and and Ellie Bird, uh, and her husband, Jared, my mom, Charlene, my stepdad, Tim, my aunt, Stell, her husband, Mike, my grandma, Betty, her sister, Ruth, uh, my papa, Ward, numerous other cousins. And uncles, great uncles, et cetera, have been in and out of there uh, over the holidays. So many memories. And this one Christmas, as wrapping paper lay scattered all over the floor, as I watched Kyler Monroe and their cousins play with new toys on the floor, as I listened to my grandma Betty joke and laugh with her daughters, my mom and Aunt Stell, and with Lindsay and Donna, my grandpa sat in his recliner in the corner, watching over everyone and smiling like he often did. He sat sipping his coffee. Dude loved coffee. Sipped coffee all day long for as long as I, I knew him. Sipped and sat like he'd done in that chair for over 20 years, so many times, Uh, where my great-grandfather had once sat before him and sipped coffee and watched everybody for additional decades. And I sat in the front of the wood stove. My great-grandma used to constantly toss more firewood into and somehow still be cold while everyone else felt like they were gonna pass out from heat, uh, like a heat stroke. And I'm sitting there, my pop board gets up, walks over to me and he says, Danny, this is what life is all about, family, watching everybody grow up. 
He truly loved his family. I think I think he loved family in a way many people never can, uh, like in a way they can't appreciate because he didn't have someone like himself in his life when he was a kid, like not even close. Uh, I don't remember ever meeting any of his family outside of, uh, you know, um, uh, a few brothers who came to the house the night before the funeral. He never spoke about them. He only talked to me about them if I asked him. Uh, he had a terrible father. He referred to his father not by name, but as the old man. And the old man was, according to Pop Award, uh, the few times I was able to get this out of him, uh, an abusive drunk he just would rather not talk about. And his mom, he didn't seem to have much love for her either. Uh, she left him when he was young, four, and he, and he never really spent any time with her after that uh, during his childhood. Never seemed uh, She never seemed to make much of an effort to have a relationship with him. Growing up outside of some of his siblings, he had really no one to lean on, no safety net to ever fall back on. And then he grew up, and instead of being bitter about all that, instead of complaining about how life wasn't fair and about the bad hand he'd been dealt, about how he'd been given a raw deal, et cetera, he, he worked his ass off. He seemed especially motivated to make sure he wasn't anything like his father. He just built himself a, a very different life than the one he had as a kid. He knew what it felt like to have parents you couldn't count on, who didn't seem to care for you, who didn't protect you. So he made sure to be the exact opposite of that for his family. And he did so well in that regard. Uh, he and my grandma took my mom and I, my sister in, uh, into their into their home after my parents' divorce, when my mom couldn't afford to live on her own, uh, couldn't afford to raise two kids on her own. And, and, and we never felt unwanted, never felt like a burden, the opposite, actually. Uh, he helped raise me and my sister. He never complained about it. He, he seemed to love it. I ate more meals at their house growing up than I did at either my mom's or my dad's houses. So many meals with Papa Ward. Uh, digging up potatoes from his garden out back to have grandma cook them up. Classic Idaho. Of course I was digging up potatoes. Such a stereotype. Uh, picking some corn from his garden or some tomatoes. Never saw a guy like tomatoes more than Papa Ward. Uh, dude ate them like apples. Uh, also, sometimes we eat onions like apples, which still disturbs me. We just bite into an onion like a fucking madman. Uh, never ate the liver. He kept always trying to push on my plate. Dude loved liver. <laughs> no one loved to tell you what you needed to eat. No one tried to put more food on your plate than Pop Ward. And he gave us, yeah, anyway, he gave us a home, a great home. He did the same for his uh, only other child and her children, my aunt. After her divorce, she also moved back in with him and my grandma. Uh, he did whatever he needed to do to take care of his little tribe. He always put family first, even ahead of his primary retirement entertainment of slot machines. Man, he loved a hot slot. Uh, Pop Ward never made a lot of money in any given year, but he and my grandma were so good with the money they did make. The classic, it's not what you earn, it's what you save. Uh, they didn't waste it, never gambled more money than they were okay with losing. Uh, they never made much, but they had such great retirements. Um, they saved, they planned. He knew what it was like to live without. He was born during the Great Depression. And from what I've learned, uh, was a kid from one of the poorest families of a really impoverished area of Idaho. He knew what it was like to have not. So he taught himself to be very good with the money he did have once he had it. The first priority he had with money was not to go get a fancy car, a new truck, or fancy clothes, or a bigger, nicer house or to go on luxurious vacations. He didn't give a fuck about keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses could run up their credit cards all day long. Papa Ward would drive a beater until he could buy a new car or truck with nothing but cash. His first priority was always to make sure everyone was taken care of. He was the rock for everyone to lean on. I find so much nobility in that, right? So much altruism. You don't see a lot of that in life. Very inspiring. Uh, I, I hope you enjoyed the, the story of his life today as best I can tell it. Going to share some of the advice he gave and, and a lot of funny family tales and some poignant memories I have to create the best picture of who he was. Going to lay out a timeline of his life and mix in some Idaho history with it. Need to lay out some context of where he lived first. Need to throw down some hog folk, dog folk, central Idaho history. Uh, not too much though. 
Not, not too much. I doubt there are a ton of listeners who just can't get enough of Central Idaho history, who just think like, man, I sure hope Cummins lays out a ton of Central Idaho. I hope most of the episode is Central Idaho history. If there's one thing I can't get enough of, it's learning about Idaho County. <laughs> Fuck yeah, bro. Now, uh, I'm going to make it all as entertaining as I can. Let's, uh, let's hop on in, learn about Pop Ward, also about Idaho. I learned so much. I wish I would have learned years ago. I'm, I'm embarrassed I didn't. On today's Time Suck Timeline, right after today's sponsor break, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK 
at H-E-R-O dot C-O. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Now we go full Idaho. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. August 13, 1932. Wardale Hall is born near Lake Cascade in central Idaho. Except it wasn't a lake at that time. He was just born uh, <laughs> in an area where a lake would be uh, in the no longer existent little community of Arling, Idaho. He's born with a comb over, wearing suspenders and blue jeans that wouldn't stay on his butt without him. At least that's how I imagine it. That's how I saw him for most of my life. He's probably born with a trucker hat. Uh, he's born on the homestead. His grandfather, Samuel Hall, who was born in Nashville, Tennessee on August 28th, 1851, had traveled west to lay claim to. Before Tennessee, the Halls go back to Virginia and North Carolina. My oldest known American-born relative on that side being Elizabeth Amanda Hall, born in Stony Fork, North Carolina, 1739. Uh, before North Carolina, I think they came over from England, but I'm not 100% positive. Ancestry.com, the family tree there, not currently tracked back prior to the birth of Elizabeth Amanda, which is a great name, by the way. I love both those names and I really like them put together. I, I'm just going to say, I, I bet my fourth great grand aunt was a looker. Hail, Lucifina. Uh, Samuel Hall got his homestead land title for 160 acres near and now partially under Cascade Lake in 1894. And since you generally had to homestead for a good five years before you got your land deed, guessing Samuel who would be my great-great-grandfather, started farming the land where Papa Ward was born sometime around 1889. He would have uh, had to have traveled by wagon train, by horseback for at least part of the journey since no railroad reached anywhere near that area of Idaho uh, at that time. Probably did take the railroad to get to uh, from Tennessee over into Southern Idaho. Early central Idaho routes, at least for a white man. Uh, and how crazy to hop on a train, head out west, you know, uh, to just join some wagon train to, to claim, then try and tame 160 acres of untamed land with the tools, you know, that today you can only find in a museum or on somebody's property as decoration. How weird in the time we live in to think about traveling anywhere where you can't access Wi-Fi or drive through a Starbucks or head to an urgent care clinic or own or access a car or own or potentially buy a nice pair of comfortable hiking shoes, air conditioning, Heater, fast food, you know, or in little tiny Arlene, Idaho, you probably, uh, you know, couldn't even get a restaurant. If there was a restaurant, there was, there was no more than one. My grandma doesn't even think they had a single restaurant. Samuel, in all likelihood, would have had to build his own place to live, build his own barn. He would have had to clear the ground of pine trees, maybe a lot of pine trees. He would have had to use an axe or a cross-cut saw, also called a misery whip, to fall that timber. The term misery whip comes from the difficulty and frustration of using a saw that was unwieldy and didn't hold a sharp edge very well. Cutting down tree after tree with an unwieldy fucking dull saw made you miserable. Uh, misery whips came in a variety of sizes depending on the tree that was cut down. The saws ranged from the one-man saw, which could be as short as three feet, 
to the two-man saw, which could be as long as 16 feet. Those guys just pulling it back and forth. Uh, felling saws were flexible, relatively light saws. You know, th- these lumberjacks would use to cut down these trees. Uh, sounds terrible. And then you had to get rid of the stump. Here's how one article on homesteading in the 19th century laid out a way of getting rid of stumps. It says, uh, after a tree was felled, branches were cut off and the trunk rolled aside. The stump might have been left in the ground for a few years to let it deteriorate a bit. Eventually, the stump had to be grubbed, just grubbing stumps. A grub axe, four to eight inches wide, flat on one side, was used to dig around stumps, cut off small roots. A pickaxe was used to cut off larger roots. A double bit or pickaxe had two sides. It was used to break hardened or rocky soils to chop out roots while loosening the soil and to remove to break rocks, uh, to remove or break rocks. And then blacksmiths made the axes and the tools, that uh, all these tools they used. So a real big tree with a lot of big, healthy roots, that was an all-day job. Imagine clearing 160 acres of stumps, just grubbing, grubbing, grubbing. When I read about stuff like this, I often think about how much tougher folk had to be to survive in times like these compared to now. I also think about web trolls randomly and whiny outrage police types. You know, people always bitching about how this or that isn't fair. Life isn't fair. I wonder how much less they would bitch if they had to do some fucking grubbing, some stumping, hard manual labor. I feel like it could calm down a lot of keyboard warriors, a lot of Debbie Downers <laughs> fucking come to their senses real quick if they had to do some grubbing. Uh, old Pappy Samuel would have likely had a pair of workhorses to pull the steel plow across the land, him walking behind it. What did he grow? I don't know for sure. Possibly potatoes, corn, wheat, probably a variety of crops on rotation, depending on what was selling that year. Whatever he sold, I know he didn't sell much. They don't make a living off the farm. He never uh, he never even built a proper cabin on the homestead. Uh, Pop Ward's family tree, not many branches were anything other than extreme rural poverty. Uh, he, he homesteaded largely, I imagine, because he didn't have enough money to buy anything back in Tennessee. And what a different kind of life. Hard work, but not much money. I know the old Hall Farm had milk cows. Uh, they could have uh, had uh, fresh milk. They did when Papa Ward was young, churned butter, maybe make some cheese even. They had chickens. They hunted deer, caught extra fish for food. They ate what they what they grew. Uh, and they did okay uh, in that respect. You know, they were very poor, but no no family stories about anyone starving that I'm aware of. They lived off the land and, and they sure picked some pretty cold, snow-laden land to live off of. The average low temperature, the area was just 10 degrees Fahrenheit in January with an average high of 36. December, about the same. The average low is either below freezing or at freezing from October all the way through May. And then there was the snow. Cascade, that uh, the long valley there, averages 102 inches of snow per year. That's in case you're bad with inches. That's a fucking lot. That's over eight feet a season. Uh, much more in all the surrounding mountains. Not all, not all at one time, of course, but still a lot over a winter. The average uh, snowfall for the U.S., 28 inches. Coeur d'Alene here averages, we get a lot of snow compared to most places, averages about 70 inches. You know, it was an extra 32 inches in the Long Valley there. Popward talked about having to walk to school through the snow when I was a kid. I thought he was just exaggerating because we didn't get a lot of snow in Riggins. Uh, he was not kidding. He had to walk through deep snow. The only source of uh, heat they had growing up was a wood stove. No hand warmers, no modern insulated fancy-ass gloves you could buy at REI or some ski shop. Now, maybe a, maybe a pair of some old leather work gloves that you better not lose because you just can't Amazon a new pair to yourself in 48 hours or less if you do lose them. Man, gotta have it easy compared to my grandpa or compared to my old Pappy Samuel. Holy shit. I typed up these notes on a MacBook Pro. I listened to some Chubby Checker radio on Spotify through a nice Bose speaker here in the Suck Dungeon. Pop Ward loves some Chubby Checker. Loves some Fast Domino. I sat in a climate-controlled studio, grabbed a hot coffee from a coffee stand down the street, 
Tons of delicious lunch options within five minutes of the Suck Dungeon. Still sleeping on a sweet Lisa mattress with all its fucking mattress technology. Watching shows on Netflix, bouncer from device to device or to device seamlessly to do so. Watch them on a, you know, big ass flat screen TV that costs less than a TV half the size and 10 times the weight cost a few years ago. And I still bitch about shit every day, right? Wi-Fi takes more than five seconds to bring up a site. And I'm like, come on, load already, you piece of shit. <laughs> Been having some Facebook problems. Like I had to verify something and I had to wait on the email. Took longer than I thought. And I immediately was like, fuck Facebook, fucking hate it. <laughs> All worked up. Got it so easy compared to this, these guys back then. Uh, I'm dumb enough to look online and read some one-star uh, reviews of myself from time to time. And immediately I'm like, oh, fuck you, asshole. You have no idea how hard I work on this. <laughs> if Pappy Samuel would have heard me complaining about any of this stuff, he'd probably whip my ass or at least would have wanted to. Uh, thinking about all this, always a good reminder to try and be mentally stronger. To try not to sweat the small stuff. Right? Appreciate how good we have it in so many ways. Uh, Pappy Ward's grandfather, Samuel, uh, an early central Idaho settler. The area around the no longer there Arlene community and the still around Cascade, 70 miles south of where I grew up in Riggins, uh, Idaho, down Highway 95, then Highway 55. Uh, it wasn't first settled whitey wise until uh whitey wise until some point in the early 1860s by a man named John Welsh, a man more commonly known in local lore as Packer John. Packer John! He was the first Packer Johnny! Uh, Packer John was the first man to establish a travel route between Lewiston. Uh, up north in Idaho, down to Boise, the Boise Basin, uh, down south, at that time celebrated as West Bannock, the richest mining region in southern Idaho. Uh, Packer John packed a lot of shit, a lot of miles. Went through a lot of, you know, untamed wilderness. Idaho, and I didn't know this until digging into my family tree this week, was one of the last areas in the lower 48 states uh, to be explored by people of European descent. And central Idaho was the last area of Idaho to be settled. Basically, in the lower 48, the area where I grew up was the very last area in the U.S. to be settled by people not native to this continent. Uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition did not enter present-day Idaho uh, until August 12th, 1805. They were probably the first people of European descent to set foot in present-day Idaho. Not that long ago. Probably. British-Canadian explorer, surveyor, and fur trader David Thompson may have led an expedition into Idaho down from Canada in 1803, but fuck that guy. Uh, did you know that David Thompson killed all three of his wives by throwing them off cliffs in either the Idaho or Canadian wilderness? If you know that, hit me up with the deets because I don't, I don't know that. I'd never heard about David Thompson. I just wanted to shake up the story a bit, say something crazy. Uh, random crazy, actually true David Thompson fact, uh, nicknamed the Stargazer, dude traveled 56,000 miles back before cars. Uh, all across North America, mapping 1.9 million squares of land of North America. Considered by some, this, uh, this British Canadian to be the greatest practical land geographer the world has produced. I didn't know who the hell he was until this week. So maybe he dipped into Idaho, maybe not. So 1803 or 1805 is when the first few white people dipped into the potato state. Uh, fur traders started showing up in Idaho around 1808 or 1809. And they first showed up not very far from where I record these podcasts. The Spell House was a fur trading post. Uh, about an hour north of the Suck Dungeon on Lake Ponderay, near the beautiful town of Sandpoint, built for the Northwest Company of Fur Traders in 1809. Some French-speaking traders working there began to use the French words Cordelaine as a nickname for the Stichewomps people who traded at Cully Spell House. In French, Cor means heart, uh, Elaine means all, a sharp-pointed tool used to pierce leather. In other words, they were known as sharp traders with hearts like the point of an awl. Within a few years, the Stichewomps people began, uh, became known as the Coeur d'Alene tribe. And Large Lake 
uh, at the center of their homeland became Lake Coeur d'Alene. Uh, the lake, the Suck Dungeon, I record out of, sits, it sits about a half mile from here, the short S. The Coleysville House would be abandoned after just two years in 1811. Uh, by the 1820s, more fur traders, the British-owned Hudson's Bay Company, were established in southern Idaho, working that Snake River. Uh, in 1836, the first Christians to make Idaho their permanent home showed up. That year, Reverend Henry H. Spalding established a Protestant mission near Lapway, where he printed the Northwest's first book, established Idaho's first school, developed its first irrigation system, and brought some taters. He grew the state's first potatoes. How about that? Idaho's first tater man. I wonder if he had any uh, idea that Idaho would become the potato state, known mostly for potatoes. Poor guy never got to experience how tasty a french fry is. Never had a salty, waffle-cut bit of deliciousness. Dipped in some sweet, tangy ketchup and then put in his pie hole. Uh, Reverend Spaulding and his family joined with some fur traders, other missionaries, to be part of the very first wagon train to head west on Americans uh, or on America's Oregon Trail. So a little bit of yeah, yeah, yeah there. Uh, Lapway, almost exactly 100 miles north of where Papa Ward spent most of his life in my hometown of Riggins and 175 miles north of the Hall Homestead, Papa Ward's grandfather laid claim to. Reverend Spaulding moved to Lapway mostly to convert members of the Nez Perce tribe there to Christianity. Uh, the Catholics showed up not many years later. In 1850, Cataldo Mission, the oldest standing building in all of Idaho, was constructed just 27 miles east of the Suck Dungeon by members of the Coeur d'Alene tribe and early Catholic missionaries, some Jesuits out of St. Louis who moved into the area just a few years earlier. Uh, I've been inside this building with Lindsay before. Uh, you know, it's nice. It's, 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 uh, it's not mind-blowing, but it's nice. There's no big stone and marble masterpiece. You know, some big cathedral you'd find back east. No elegant Spanish-tiled mission you'd find down in the southwest, but it's cool. Uh, crazy that it's Idaho's oldest still-standing building. Compared to, say, anywhere in Europe, most places in the U.S., it is not very old. Right? Like, go to London. You can find Roman ruins. You can see Westminster Abbey. I've been in there. Massive stone church built in 1960, or built in 1960, built in 960. My brain doesn't even want to acknowledge how old it is. Remodeled in 1245, pointed arches, ribbed vaulting, rose windows, flying buttresses, you know, remodeled again in 1722, uh, has a delicately carved fan vaulted roof now with hanging pendants. It's awe-inspiring. The big Gothic behemoth, kings buried underneath its floors. Nearly a hundred statues of saints in niches around the walls. Come to Idaho, you can find one small wooden church from 1850 with a floor that's it's pretty flat. It doesn't look like it's going to quite fall apart yet, you know? Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's more beat up somehow than Westminster Abbey. Uh, no one's coming to Idaho for architectural masterpieces. Uh, those Jesuits would go on to found Gonzaga University about 60 miles west of Cataldo, uh, west of that mission in Spokane, Washington, where I would go to college. Uh, they founded that in 1887. Go Zags, uh, men's team, still undefeated, headed into the uh, NCAA tournament. Number one in the nation all season long, in case you hadn't heard, pumped for March Madness this year. The Zags not making it to at least the final four. This year is truly going to be some fucking craziness. This is the best chance they've had to win it all ever. Uh, Gonzaga was founded by Father Joseph Cataldo, same man the old mission is named after. Uh, in the 1850s, the Mormons showed up when a variety of Mormon settlers settled into Southeast Idaho. Oh my heck, gosh dang, they, they got to some flipping homesteading down there. What the flip is up with all these stumps we got, grub, Ezekiel. And on March 4th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln, names ring, name rings a bell, vaguely, he signed an act to create Idaho Territory. With its territorial capital originally not being in Boise, but in Lewiston. It would change a few years later, but originally Lewiston. Uh, Lewiston, been there so many times, so many memories. The giant metropolis of roughly 30,000 people, home of the big potlatch, paper mill, a.k.a. Big Ass Gag and Stink Factory. 
I always spend about 15, 20 minutes having to get used to it. I travel to Lewiston. I've been to Lewiston so many times. Uh, I just drove down to Lewiston last Tuesday with Lindsay and the kids to have dinner with my mom and Grandma Betty at Zaney's. Great little Lewiston, long-time restaurant. Uh, Lewiston, halfway between Coeur d'Alene and Riggins. It's where Pop Award and Grandma Betty or my mom used to drive me to get school clothes and do Christmas shopping growing up. Hitting Kmart and Shopka. We would drive two hours to do some sweet-ass Kmart shopping. Neither store is there anymore. Uh, I got my first computer in Lewiston uh, from another store that no longer exists. Best Electronics. I think they've been out of business for like fucking 30 years. Uh, Commodore 64. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, playing Skate or Die, some Airborne Ranger at Papa Ward and Grandma Betty's house with the Wilson boys, Kyler and Chance. And after watching the 1983 Matthew Broderick movie, War Games, dreaming of being a hacker and somehow hacking into the bank in town, taking a penny a day from everyone's account and put into the savings account, Grandma Betty opened for me. I was going to be rich, you know, no one's going to notice. Uh, Papa Ward and Grandma Betty, they let me turn the entire back room of their house into my mess around on the computer uh, practice the saxophone, which I'm sure was super fun for them to listen to in a small house, and flip through the encyclopedia, right? They let me just do whatever I want back there. They had a, a little small three-bedroom house, one bath, and they let me have free reign over a good chunk of it. As long as Papa Ward had his recliner in the living room, got to watch the five o'clock Boise News on the TV and the Atlanta Braves games. Whenever they were on TBS, he didn't care what you did with the rest of the house, as long as you weren't too fucking noisy. I was spoiled. I wasn't pulling stumps. I wasn't grubbing. Wasn't walking through the snow in old boots covered in newspaper to keep my feet from freezing like Grandpa Ward used to do because he didn't have proper boots. Uh, back to Lewiston, bought a lot of G.I. Joe's at that Kmart in Lewiston. Bought a lot of knockoff sneakers at that shop go. Bought my first compact disc in some long dead record shop in that old Lewiston mall on the top of the hill. Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Fuck yeah, nothing but a G thing. <laughs> Bet you didn't expect that one. Years earlier, I had, I had a fun, I have a funny pop award memory from that tiny... Lewiston Mall. Uh, back in the mid-80s, I was there with Grandma Betty and Papa Ward. We were in JCPenney's. Maybe Sears. That mall's so tiny. <laughs> uh, its food court was an Orange Julius. Like, that's, that's it. Literally just one place to get food. And they didn't even have much food. You could get a hot dog or you could get an Orange Julius or maybe like two other flavors of Julius. Not much else. They had like three anchor stores. They had JCPenney, Macy's, and I think Sears. Most of what I wore in grade school, junior high, and high school was bought at either that tiny-ass mall or Kmart or Shopco, which were nearby. Uh, other than those stores, I think them all had a Hallmark store, a jewelry store, yeah, tiny music store, a few other stores, all of them pretty small. Even the anchor stores, pretty, pretty small. Like we're not talking like a New York City Macy's. Uh, we're talking one big room on one floor, the whole mall, one floor. It's barely a mall. And I wandered away from my grandparents one day, probably being a little jackass, probably, probably hiding in the middle of those clothes racks that I used to do a lot. God, that would piss off my mom. And then, you know, uh, when I came out from where I was wandering or hiding, I couldn't find them. And I immediately panicked. And I thought that they forgot me and just went back to Riggins. Like that's the thing that would happen. Like they was like, well, I don't know where he is. Let's just go home. And I started crying. <laughs> and some, some manager noticed me crying. Uh, I thought he was going to kidnap me. He called me down enough to find out that, you know, I was looking for my grandpa. And so uh, <laughs> he, you know, asked like, could Ward Hall, uh, Ward Hall, please come to Sears and pick up his grandson, Danny. Could Ward Hall, please come to Sears and pick up, you know, whatever the section so he came, he comes to get me. I'm sure he was embarrassed. Probably took him 30 seconds to walk from wherever he was in the mall to wherever I was. And then he didn't get mad at me. Even by the time, you know, by the time he made it, even though I was, I was ugly crying by the time he made it to me, he didn't yell at me. He didn't yell at me that day or any other day. I literally don't have a single memory of him ever yelling at me. Uh, not once in my whole life. Uh, he walked me over to Orange Julius and he called me down with no surprise in Orange Julius. Maybe a hot dog. And all was good in the world again. Uh, what the fuck even is an Orange Julius, by the way? I've never looked into it. 
It's like an orange juice, but not. It's, it lives somewhere between juice and smoothie. It's not either one. Uh, anyway, Lewiston was, Lewiston was founded in 1861 after the nearby town of Pierce had a minor gold rush in 1860. Gold is what brought most of the early settlers to Idaho. Pierce is a little town of about 500 now. It's where gold was first discovered in present-day Idaho. In 1849, Elias Davidson Pierce had made it to California for that big 1849ers, right? The 49ers gold rush. And after really learning how to mine in California and serving in California's House of Representatives, he headed north, then east, and he became Idaho's first successful miner. Gold then drove tens of thousands of miners into Idaho over the next few months. The Clearwater Gold Rush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's more than taters in those hills. There's gold. Gold and taters in them hills. Uh, seeking the pay dirt following Pierce's discovery of gold in, uh, on Orfino Creek, in October 1860, there were so many people coming in that according to Pierce, they made the hills and mountains ring with shouts of joy. The mining camp of Orofino, Spanish for fine gold, sprang up shortly after gold was found, right? Two miles away in Pierce. Within a few weeks, 60 buildings were built. Within a few weeks, nine or 10 stores, bunch of saloons, couple uh, blacksmiths, etc. I mean, they're just throwing shit up as fast as they can to make some money off this gold rush. Uh, Orofino became Orfino, that's how it's said now. And I remember playing Orfino <laughs> in basketball, their school when I was in junior high. Weird story about Orfino to show how backwoods my homeland was and is. <laughs> Orfino is home to the Idaho State Hospital North, an asylum, first opened in 1905. I believe a girl from my graduating high school class of just 23 kids works there right now. It's been a home for people suffering from mental illness for over 115 years. And in 1927, Orfino High School they decided that their basketball team and then all their sports teams should be called the Maniacs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you heard that right. The mascot for the high school that sits like two blocks from this, not even, like a block and a half from the state asylum is the fucking Maniacs. The official story behind the name is that Orfino, not having the resource to provide his players with basketball uniforms at the time in that 1927 game, they got teased by some Kamei fans. Uh, Kamei, little tiny town, 22 miles down the highway where a couple of my cousins live. Kamei fans said that the Orfino uh, players, you know, played their hearts out, you know, played so hard that they looked like, quote, a bunch of maniacs. Huh. I wonder, I wonder why they use that word. I wonder if it was because, you know, kids in Kamei who didn't live very far away definitely knew about the Orfino Asylum, the biggest asylum in Idaho at that time. <laughs> like it would have been the biggest village in town at that time. To this day, the school refuses to change the name of its mascot. Their mascot is a dude who looks severely mentally ill, painted on the wall of their gym, jumping up and screaming. <laughs> the high school is like, I looked on the map, it's literally like 800 feet from the mental hospital and they still call themselves the fucking maniacs. And back in 1993, the Idaho Alliance for the Mentally Ill wrote a letter to the Orfino Joint School District School Board requesting that the mascot be abandoned because it stigmatizes and perpetuates the old stereotype attached to the mentally ill. And then a bunch of townsfolk Got mad that they wanted to change it. Showed up to the meeting wearing all kinds of Orfino maniac gear. Hats, fucking jackets, a little fucking probably, you know, like flags they're, wa they're waving. And they voted down like in a landslide to not change the name. And then my high school and junior high, the one Papa Ward's house is about a stone's throw away from, our mascot was and is still the Savage. It's an American Indian on horseback called a Savage. Eek! A Nez Perce protester of this mascot once said that the word savage is as offensive to indigenous peoples as the N-word is to African-Americans, which makes sense. They're not fucking savages. They're modern people. They have artists, doctors, lawyers. They're every bit as cultured and civilized, civilized as anyone else in America. It's so inflammatory. 
and Riggins also refuses to change the name. The school district administrator defended the decision recently to keep the name, saying that the uh, term savage doesn't really mean anything about American Indians. It's coincidence, right? It's just someone who plays hard or fights really hard for what they believe in. Kind of like, you know, a maniac. A maniacs and savages. Just They're just people who play hard at sports. They're definitely not the mentally ill. They're definitely not American Indians. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, when I was in junior high, I was on, uh, you know, uh, the basketball team and the savages played the maniacs. Holy hell. And some, and some in Idaho wonder why in many people's eyes, we are a hillbilly laughingstock of a state. Uh, back to 1860 now. Uh, things are just getting going in Idaho. Uh, white settler, you know, population-wise. Uh, there are a couple missions, some early homesteaders, some fur trapping, and now a small gold rush up north by Lewiston. Two years later, much bigger gold rush kicks off in the Boise Basin. The area around Idaho's biggest city and state capital, an area 78 miles south of where Papa Ward was born, uh, have been populated by members of the Shoshone and Bannock peoples for thousands of years. And then the Pacific Fur Company's Aster Expedition uh, brought whites to the area for the first time in 1811. John Reed, uh, part of that Aster Expedition, and a small party of Pacific Fur Company traders established an outpost near where the Boise River meets the Snake River in 1813. The post would soon be abandoned due to hostilities with local tribes. Another trading post would be established few years later, also abandoned due to ongoing hostilities. 1819, same thing, with yet another post. 1834, Thomas McKay, a fur trader who had worked for the Hudson's Bay Company, then builds Fort Boise over on the Idaho-Oregon border. It would be abandoned after more hostilities, several rebuilds uh, in 1854. It's abandoned. Finally, a new Fort Boise is built in 1863 as a military outpost in present-day Boise to help protect a whole bunch of gold prospectors who had just poured into the area in the past year. Let's talk about this gold rush. It's a huge one that really never gets any attention. Uh, George Grimes heard a tale by some local uh, Native Americans about so much gold laying about. He heard that he hears a tale in Walla Walla where he's at. You could just literally pick it up by the handful. And he was inspired to go check it out. He and a group of prospectors from Walla Walla in Washington set out for what would later be known as the Boise Basin in 1862, where he discovers that crazy story to be pretty close to the truth. Just gold laying all over the fucking ground, right? Like shallow streams just laden with gold. How pumped were those guys? Over a decade after the big 1849 California gold rush, with stories of massive fortunes being built from various claims and all that madness, you know, right, whirling around in your head. And then you hear about a, a place miners haven't made it to yet where there's literally gold laying all over the ground. And then you make it there. And then it's true. Lot of celebratory moonshine drank that night. Unfortunately for George Grimes, he would never get to sell any of the gold he found. Grimes was murdered within just a few days of finding all that gold. Big bummer. Highest of highs to the deadest of deads. And we'll never know who did it. Uh, if not my dad, probably somebody's dad did it, right? You get it. Uh, some thought he was killed by a greedy partner. The accepted story is that he was killed by local tribes. Or maybe they just made a convenient scapegoat. Whoever killed him, he never witnessed the result of the Boise Basin strike that his discovery started. Whoever, uh, previous to gold being discovered in the Boise Basin, the area was a, a wilderness inhabited only by some tribes with a few mountain men, fur trappers occasionally passing through. Within eight months of the strike, the area became the largest settled area of the Pacific Northwest. By 1863, the population, just the next year, the population of the area uh, estimated as being between 25 and 70,000 people. At 25,000 to 70,000 70, people, more people living in the Boise Basin than there were living in Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington at that time. The actual rush years lasted from 1862 to 1864. Right? Those big gold strikes, always pretty quick. 
Uh, the Boise Basin gold strike turned out to be one of the richest strikes in American history. Various articles say this gold strike was bigger than any of the now much more famous California gold strikes. Idaho, in addition to sometimes being crazy as hell, often uh, also a very humble state. Uh, not kidding. Local Idaho culture, I think, is to not really make a big deal out of stuff. I, we don't want to seem like we're showing off. We're not bragging or something. Uh, for a hardworking gold miner in a good location during the strike, a week of prospecting could yield $2,000, right? That's, that's over 60 grand in today's dollars. Fortunes were made quickly. Making anywhere from eight to two, 20 bucks a day was common. That's 250 to around 650 in today's dollars. Uh, the work was hard. Bench gravels often had to be packed in backpacks, transported to the water, but a hardworking miner often made 50 to $60 per day. That's, uh, you know, up to $2,000 a day in today's dollars. Then by 1870, after cooling off in 1864, the rush was completely over. Mining continued, but not the same way, not at the same feverish pace. Most of the easy stream, you know, gravels were uh, considered played out and, and many claims were sold to Chinese miners who then were willing to work the lower grade claims, which continued to be profitable for them. In the 1870s, numerous stamp mills were in operation. Quartz mining prospered, uh, supporting the area for decades. Placer mining continued for a long stretch because it was not possible to work an area long enough in a season to deplete it quickly. Dredge mining began in 1898 and continued through the 1950s. All told, 2,800,000 ounces of gold estimated to have come out of there between 1863 and 1959. Uh, the big Boise gold rush brought in a lot of people. People like Packer John. His name sounds a lot like uh, Papa John. So this guy didn't sell pizza and he probably wasn't super racist. Actually, he probably was super racist. This was the 1860s. Uh, Packer John was the first known white man to head up north of Boise, the present day area of Valley County, sometime in either 1860 or 1861. Remember, this is the guy who, who established that first route between Lewiston and Boise. Uh, so sometime, you know, 1860 or 1861, he makes it into Long Valley, where my grandpa was born, where my aunt Stell and Uncle Mike uh, now live near in McCall. There were other white men in surrounding areas, like around the boomtown of Florence, first territorial capital of Idaho County. My hometown of Riggins is in Idaho County, town legendary among many Riggins. Uh, Florence was a gold strike town that went from nobody to about 9,000 people to nobody in four years, from 1861 to 1865. And then a few additional waves of mostly Chinese miners uh, stayed until around 1890. Later waves of a little bit of mining took place all the way into the 1930s. Florence could be a suck unto itself, kind of a forgotten tombstone type of place, right? They had a Mason's Lodge, library, a school, tons of saloons, butchers, hostels, lots of outlaws, lots of gunfights, gunfights in the street, gunfights in the gambling halls, all kinds of shit. A lot of, lot, a lot of uh, yip, yip, yaw in Florence. A lot of all be your huckleberry. Uh, with all this mining being done around Florence, which sat 160, or while all this mining was being done around Florence, which sat 160 miles north of where Pop Ward was born and about 40 miles from where he'd settled down in my hometown of Riggins, the area where Papa Ward grew up, that Long Valley area, remained largely unsettled. Packer John Welch had contracted to freight supplies from the Umatilla Landing on the Columbia River, now on the border of Washington, Oregon, to south of Tri-Cities, a.k.a. the Dry Cities, uh, to the miners of Idaho City, 300 miles away. Idaho City, about 40 miles northeast of Boise, 70 miles from the Long Valley area of the Hall Homestead. Soon after making it to Idaho, Packer John established a supply station near what later became the town of Cascade as he took on the uh, new job of bringing supplies back and forth between Lewiston and Boise. 270 miles, 270 rough, hard-traveled miles. No slow-moving rivers to float down, no paved highways, lots of no roads, lots of real rugged mountains, lots of dangerous rivers and tensions between whites and local tribes. I'm sure these, uh, these packing trips were a lot of fun. 
Also, very random thought, but how dirty do you think Packer John's balls were when he finally made it to either Lewiston or Boise, right? Like on a scale of two rotten pine cones dipped in mud and sprinkled in squirrel shit to a pair of moldy taters soaked in vinegar and then covered in a mixture of dog shit and pus from a boil. What do you think? Closer to the cones or closer to those uh, groin taters? Uh, Good luck. Totally getting that uh, thought out of your head. Rest of, rest of today. Uh, then during the 1870s, prospectors, but I didn't think about that. I'm like, God, you'd be so fucking dirty by the time you made it someplace. Uh, during the 1870s, prospectors and miners followed in Packer John's footsteps uh, to scour the valleys and surrounding mountains of central Idaho for more gold. Once the Boise Basin mining strike got a little, you know, tough when gold got hard to get there. Once in central Idaho, they encountered the peoples of the Sheep Eater Tribe, a band of Shoshone, uh, also known as the Tukadika people whose lives were once centered around the lives of the area's bighorn sheep. Pop Ward used to talk a lot about the sheep eaters and how they'd lived not long ago all around where I grew up. As a kid with Pop Ward, I uh, sifted for arrowheads a few times, found some, also found some spearheads. Most of them found 30 miles from Riggins on my stepdad's property near Whitebird, named after Chief Whitebird, leader of a band of Nez Perce. Maybe we found some Nez Perce arrows, maybe we found some sheep eater arrows. Uh, the sheep eaters were the rare tribe never to adapt using horses, the high mountain terrain they lived in, the rough, steep mountains I used to climb for something to do as a kid, not suitable for horses. They lived in small, self-sufficient groups, hunted bighorn sheep, followed them all around the mountains of central Idaho. Other sheep eaters lived in southeastern Idaho, in Wyoming, around Jackson Hole. And in the 1870s, the sheep eaters of the Long Valley around Cascade and Arling were removed and sent to reservations further south. Some mines were established in the general area, but nothing big, nothing compared to the big Boise Basin strike. By the late 1870s, most of the mining had dwindled down to just a few prospectors. Some of the miners, once the easy-to-get gold was all gone, they decided to squat and stay. Uh, these squatters weren't exactly legal homesteaders. They skipped all the paperwork, part of the whole homesteading deal, and just built a cabin wherever they wanted to live. Because who was going to kick them out? Like, no one was around. Uh, there are still the ruins of old squatter cabins from the 1870s and the subsequent decades uh, dotted all around where I grew up. People who came to mine or fur trap or hunt, grow some vegetables, trade, just be the fuck away from society. I love that they didn't file any paperwork or anything, right? They just way out in the middle of nowhere, away from any roads or towns or any government officials. And they were just like, I reckon this spot looks good. Plenty enough. They can cut down yonder pines, get some grubbing, stack these rocks. They got a sailor and I reckon I'll just live here for a few years or the rest of my life. It was like going camping on unmanaged land. But instead of throwing up a tent, you just threw up a cabin and you just maybe stayed for the rest of your life. Uh, the first squatter near where my grandfather's grandfather got that original homestead was a man named James Horner. He built a cabin on Clear Creek in 1881, just a few miles from the Hall homestead. Soon after, some other miners settled along the nearby Payette River. So like, you know, when my grandpa, where he settled, he's like within the first decade of people, my great, great grandpa. In 1884, the first blacksmith shop was opened in the valley by L.S. Kimball, who'd come over all the way from Illinois. Around that time, uh, another man named Maxie came to nearby Round Valley to fatten some hogs. On the valley's camas roots. Sounds like something that a dude named Maxie would do. Fatten hogs and whatnot, right? Howdy! Maxie's my name and fattening hogs is my game. Pleased to meet you. And Maxie would like spit some tobacco into his hand and expect you to shake it. Also, whose balls are dirtier? Packer John's or Hogman Maxie? Uh, another early Long Valley seller, Mr. Caroline Jarvis, brought, uh, bought his homestead in 1888. Dude named Caroline. 1888, did not expect that, but that's what the source says. Uh, Johnny Cash's boy named Sue vibes there. And then in 1892, W.A. Billy Bacon. Billy Bacon! Wife, it ain't Billy Bacon! There's a Maxie Hog over here! Uh, Billy Bacon came to Boise in 1863, married Sarah Jarvis. 
and built a log cabin to, I don't know why I love his name is Billy Bacon, built a log cabin to begin his homestead in Round Valley. 1886, Jack Jasper, all these great names. Well, Jack Jasper, uh, meet Billy Bacon. Uh, we need to go talk to Maxie the Hogman. Um, <laughs> so any, anyways, Jack Jasper, uh, Jasper, he establishes a homestead, estimates uh, that there were about 30 families in the Valley in 1886. And then in 1888, the first post office in Valley County is opened. And around this time, I'm guessing in 1889, maybe 1888, Samuel Hall, Papa Ward's great grandpa shows up. This little area starts working that land. One of the first homesteaders that appears to ever settle around what will later become the town of Cascade, uh, where Pop, near where Papa Ward grew up. Uh, the next year, 1890, Idaho becomes a state. 1893, Charles Hall, Ward's father, born in the Long Valley of Idaho on the Hall Homestead. The homestead actually part of the little town of Arlene, Idaho. Now Arlene, just a few houses. Not sure a sign even designates it as a place anymore. Can't find anything about it on the web, really. I don't remember anyone ever talking about it to me. Uh, most of Arlene, just eight miles up from Cascade, now lays at the bottom of a lake. Uh, over the next 30 years, Charles Hall grows up with his 12 siblings, Deke. And I never heard Papa Ward once talk about a single aunt or uncle. So weird. 1916, this guy marries Hazel Viola Williams. Papa Ward's mom was just 16, barely 16. Her family moved out west all the way from the little town of uh, Horton Township in Elk County, Pennsylvania. Just two years earlier, 1914, the Union Pacific completes track from Emmett, about 10 miles north of Boise, to McCall, 30 miles north of Cascade, making commercial logging in the area profitable. Logging then became, along with farming and ranching, the economic mainstay of Long Valley for many, many years. The railroad track passed right next to or through Cascade, and the town grew. The track also apparently ran right through part of the Hall Homestead. I uh, hope they got some, uh, some money for that. Sounds like they may have gotten some train cars out of the deal that they would weirdly live in. More on that later. Uh, Charlie and Hazel, my great-grandparents, would have their first child together 10 months after getting married. Norma Ruth, born in October of 1917. Hazel's still just 16. That same year, Valley County is created by the Idaho State Legislature. They'd have seven more kids together before they had Papa Ward. He was their ninth child, born on the farm. Two years after Ward, they had their 10th kid, Thomas. He'd end up settling down outside of Seattle. Ward was closest to his brother, Tom, apparently when they were young. Two would move to Riggins together later, right before meeting my grandma Betty. Uh, the 11th child was born, Milton, born in 1936. He'd moved to Macon, Georgia. He was the brother I heard the most about growing up. Grandpa would go to visit him a few times. 12th child, Forrest, born in 1938. Good dude. Talked to him a lot at the funeral. He put in 20 plus years in the military, settled down in uh, Nampa, Idaho. A couple separated around this time after Forrest was born, with half the kids then living uh, with Hazel down in Cascade, the other half living on the farm with Charlie. A 13th child, Leo, was born to possibly a different father a year or so later. He would settle down in Boise. Leo, I have met him, and he is a character. The night before Grandpa's funeral, he traveled up to Riggins with, uh, with his brother Forrest, and we were sitting in the living room, <laughs> my grandma Betty's home, the house from the opening of this suck, and somehow the topic of painful surgeries came up, and he told the most ridiculous uh, story. <laughs> he told us his most painful surgery he'd ever had story about getting some hemorrhoids removed. Well, actually, actually, that's what he first opened with. He said it was hemorrhoids. And then he, and then he paused after he said hemorrhoids and he goes, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but I thought, I thought it was hemorrhoids. Turned out it was actually an STD. And then he proceeded to explain in front of my grandma, his brother, Forrest, Forrest's wife, my wife, Lindsay, the kids, Kyler Monroe, my sister and her kids, some of my cousins, my mom, stepdad, aunt, uncle, uh, how he had genital warts on his asshole. A lot of them. Uh, they built up for, <laughs> for years and then had to be surgically removed because it was hard for him to sit down. 
And then after having the genital warts burned off of his butthole, he sat in some Epsom salt in a bath and he said he felt like his butthole was on fire. <laughs> ah, just talking about nasty ass shit like that in front of everybody. Like it's not a big deal. It's, it's in my blood to do that. Hail Nimrod. Uh, not long after telling that story, Leo just said goodnight, uh, said sorry about Pop Ward and just went to his hotel. Like he hadn't just told, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> genital warts on his butthole story. Uh, that was my favorite part of that whole day. Easily. Not so much for Grandma Betty. She did not find that funny. Uh, Kyler and Monroe, my niece, uh, nephew, Ellie Bird, M, uh, they're a little bit stunned. Uh, they were not expecting a lengthy tale about an 80-year-old man once getting genital warts uh, burned off his asshole. Uh, Pop Ward would have found that tale both embarrassing and, and hilarious. Back to Pop Ward's childhood. Uh, growing up, Grandpa made it sound like the kids on the farm just, uh, you know, a few miles from the kids in Cascade never saw each other after their parents' divorce around 1936. His mom had more kids than she could handle. So did his dad. And despite living so close, they just parted ways and just like stayed apart. My grandma Betty said that Pop Ward never stayed at his mom's house, right? He left when he was, uh, or his parents split when he was four. And then his siblings who went to live with his mom were not welcomed back on the farm by his dad, like fucking, like ever for the rest of their childhoods. How fucked. Charlie Hall had no interest in seeing half of his kids ever again. And they were just down the road. <laughs> there was a few miles away. And then he wouldn't let, uh, you know, the other half of his kids know their siblings, right? Their other half, like half of their siblings or their, or their mom. Ah, so weird. Grandma Betty said Pop Ward uh, never knew his mom. They were never close. Uh, his dad never remarried. Uh, never really had a maternal figure in his life. His mom never seemed to remarry either. Grandma Betty says she, uh, she also, uh, she never worked. Family assumption. I mean, she had a lot of kids to take care of. Uh, family assumption. She lived on welfare. Charlie worked uh, as a freighter. Tough job. Carried goods via horses. Kind of like Packer John. He carried goods via horse, uh, horseback into the Stibnite Mining District, uh, 60 miles away, 60 miles of mostly trails, no roads. Stibnite, now a ghost town, uh, first mined in 1899, Stibnite kicked out gold, silver, antimony, and tungsten. And random fact, from 1941 to 1945, Stibnite mined and milled more tungsten and antimony than any other mine in the U.S. During that period, Stibnite produced 40% of the nation's domestic supply of tungsten, 90% of its antimony, uh, both rare metals used in weapons manufacturing. Antimony found uh, in nature, mainly in the mineral called stibnite. Uh, it looks, it's really pretty. It looks like silver. My great-grandpa John may have worked in that mine. I think so. He definitely worked in some other mines in the area. And as a kid, he gave me a big silver ore. Coolest rock I've ever had by far. Uh, when Pop Ward talked about his dad and his life on the old man's farm, which was very rare, he basically said that life was hard. He said he never really had a childhood. I remember one time him saying that literally no one ever bought him a, a toy. Like he was talking about some toy got teased me about being spoiled. And I thought he was kidding. He was not kidding. Uh, he never, like literally never got a single toy <laughs> in his childhood, apparently. And some of his older sisters, uh, especially Charlotte and Florence, they were the ones to basically raise him. They were the ones who would tell a lot of these stories to Grandma Betty, who would verify all these details with me. I just talked to her there the other night, interviewed her about all this. Uh, he said he had chores, lots of them for as long as he could remember. He started milking cows at the age of either four or five. He started helping to plow and harvest the fields at around the age of six or seven. When he didn't do his chores, his dad beat the shit out of him. Grandma Betty said a few of his uh, siblings uh, told her that for reasons never quite made clear, Papa Ward was his drunk father's uh, whipping post, quote unquote. The only fun memory my grandpa ever shared with me of his childhood uh, that I can remember was about going sledding on a nearby hill with some of his siblings and maybe some friends. Uh, he worked, he avoided his dad, he did a shit ton of farm work, he went to school until he dropped out of high school at some point. He went to a high school in council, an hour's drive away. He went to go live with an older sister. Not sure exactly when he left his dad's farm. I'm sure he couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. 
he never talked to me much about his childhood and never with Grandma Betty either. Uh, I asked her a bunch of questions and she really didn't know many details. You know, they were married for over 60 years and he just never really talked about it. She didn't even know he had a terrible childhood until about 30 years into their marriage when they were in Georgia and one of uh, Pop Ward's sisters finally told her, just took her aside and told her she was blown away. Like he just did not want to talk about it. Uh, going back to his early childhood, apparently on the homestead, the family didn't even live in a proper house. Grandpa told grandma they lived in some weird configuration of old train boxcars that were been converted into living quarters. Like no electricity, no running water, no indoor toilets, just real, real country poor. They, they live like fucking hobos. If the hobos, you know, the train never moved. Uh, the grade school and junior high he went to, just a one-room schoolhouse, now sits at the bottom of Cascade Reservoir, known as Lake Cascade. Grandma Betty said most of the kids at that school during the brief time it was around were Halls. <laughs> they were his relatives. They're either Pop Ward siblings or his cousins. The lake was formed by a dam on the North Fork of the Payette River in 1948 when Pop Ward wasn't quite 16. The lake ended up covering part of the homestead. It has relatively shallow water controlled for irrigation, flood control, hydropower now. 1951, when Ward Hall was 19 after dropping out of high school and council so he could get a full-time job working with heavy equipment on highway construction, he got his GED, signed up for the Air Force, and became an airplane mechanic. He served overseas in both Africa and Japan before receiving an honorable discharge in 1955. Why the Air Force? He told me he signed up to avoid being drafted into the Korean War into the infantry. He found out that if he signed up to enlist, he could steer his destiny a bit more. He didn't want to be drafted into the infantry because quite simply, he didn't want to die in the Korean War like his brother had died in World War II. His older brother, Charles, born 11 years before he was born, uh, had been drafted to fight in World War II, died in the battle for Brest, fought in August and September on the Western Front at the age of 23. He was fought in France. Almost 10,000 uh, uh, Americans, almost 10,000 Americans who fought in that battle were killed or wounded. The Allies won that battle. My granduncle died fighting Nazis and helping the Allies secure the port of Brest so Allied ships could supply the Allies, push east, and further beat the Nazis back towards Germany. Did not know that until this week's research. Fighting was intense. The Nazis had entrenched themselves in the port city of Brest. Allied soldiers, like my granduncle, had to battle them back, taking over one occupied house at a time. This house-to-house urban warfare. Uh, eventually, the old city of Brest was razed to the ground during the battle with only some medieval stone-built fortifications left standing. After the war, the West German government paid re uh, reparations to civilians in Brest who had been killed, starved, or left, or left homeless because, you know, everything they had was just fucking destroyed. My grandfather showed me pictures and coins that he collected years later during his military adventures when I was a kid. Sitting in his living room, I'd often flip through books of coins he kept from Africa, Japan, the South Pacific. I'd match the currency to a country on the globe. I thought it was so cool. I've been to so many places around the world. I still do. I'd only been to Idaho and to Alaska where I'd lived from around the age of two to around the age of seven that time, returning to Riggins when my parents divorced. My grandpa had been to multiple continents. I remember thinking how funny some pictures were uh, he also kept from the war. Uh, picture my, pictures of my young pop award with, with a couple of ladies in Japan that he seemed to have been very fond of. Women who were definitely not my grandma Betty. Even as a little kid, I would think, does grandma Betty know about these ladies? She like, is, is she okay with this? Do I have cousins? I don't know about uh, apparently, at some point during the service, Pop Ward stayed in the same barracks as a man who would go on to become known as the Man in Black, Johnny Cash. He told this story a lot. Johnny Cash, the same age, also born in 1932. Cash was talking about music then, according to my grandpa, talking about his big musical dreams and ambitions. Grandpa said he thought he was full of shit. I was just a big talker. <laughs> uh, Cash would then release the huge country hit, I Walk the Line, the year after grandpa got back home from the war. 
I guess cash wasn't bullshit. I walked the line, stayed on the charts for over 43 weeks, sold over 2 million records. That single did. Uh, when Grandpa returned to the States in 1955, he returned to a little bit of a different financial picture than Johnny Cash did. He had been sending extra money home for years to his dad to, uh, so his dad could save that money for him so he could buy a car when he got back. Why did he send his money to his dad who he knew he was a piece of shit? I don't know. Maybe some attempt at reconciliation. He never said. What he did say was that his dad chartered the old man hall, drank it all away, and left him nothing. He served for four years, came back, didn't have a dime to show for it. Soon after returning home, he ended up getting a job running heavy equipment again on a construction crew. There was a big job near Riggins, Idaho, just north of town, near a little cluster of houses known as Lucille on Highway 95. They were repaving the highway there. His brother Tom came to work with him, and the two rented a house right across the street from uh, where I went to grade school in Riggins, right by City Hall. Uh, working at the Somerville's Diner in Riggins, about 100 yards down the street, was a hot young waitress, my grandma Betty, Betty Berman, just 16 at the time. Uh, grandma was 20, or Grandpa was 23, and the young bachelor was a frequent customer. Somerville's is still there, by the way. I've eaten at the same counter where my grandma uh, once served my grandpa food. And when my grandma first noticed the young skinny veteran with the, with the big grin, the big ears, and the blue eyes, uh, she says he had a girlfriend, some woman from council with a few kids. She thought Ward and her were married. She asked him if they were married one day when he was in there without her. He said no. Betty and her friend Venice, same age. I remember Venice hanging out with my grandma all the time. Venice passed away in 2016. And Betty and Venice, they noticed Ward didn't come in a lot on the weekends. So they asked him one time, you know, where, where was he? Where was he going? He said, you know, to counsel to date that woman. Grandpa, or, or grandma, excuse me, clearly interested in Pop Ward. She had some Lucifina in her. She had him in her crosshairs. And my grandma asked him, why, why was he driving over an hour, right, to date someone? Why wasn't he dating somebody around town? One of the girls there. And, and she said, because no one, or he said, because no one in town would go out with him. And so she said, adorable, I'll go out with you. And she told him there was a dance that next weekend, 20 miles up the river, up the Salmon River at a little tavern uh, by the mouth of French Creek. And uh, Papa Ward loved to tell the story of how they met. He loved to brag that grandma asked him out. He was oh, real big on pointing that out. She asked, she asked me out. <laughs> she, she asked me. Uh, one of his favorite stories to tell. Always had a big shit-eating grin telling that story. It's pretty cute. And, and he loved to point out that when they drove up the river, there was no dance. The dance had been called off for some reason or another. Uh, the dance never happened, but the date did. He said that she just wanted to get him alone up the river. <laughs> uh, the two were inseparable after that. No more councilwoman. Thank God I wouldn't be here anymore if he would have stayed with her. Uh, when Grandpa first dated Grandma, the company he worked for wanted Grandpa to keep repaving the highway with them and leave Riggins, go further north up the road. Uh, he didn't do that. His brother Tom took the job instead. Ward took a job at the Slate Creek Sawmill, a little sawmill 20 miles south of town, just so he could stay in Riggins with Grandma Betty. Uh, she said about this, uh, why'd he stay? Because Papa Ward, she said, and she really emphasized this, really liked me. Adorable. He sure did. He loved uh, the hell out of his Betty. And he never left Riggins, ever. Betty's parents, John and Stell, they liked Papa Ward right away. Uh, my grandma said they, her parents liked him because he was kind and respectful. Grandma liked him uh, because he had a huge dick. That's what she told me the other night on the phone. <laughs> she would be, if she was listening right now, she would be fucking slamming her phone down. Like, no, I did not say that. I would never say that. Why would he say? No, she said <laughs> she liked him because he was very nice and respectful too. She said he was a gentleman. Uh, 1957, my grandma Betty graduated from Sam River High School. Uh, in that May, I believe, maybe June. And then on August 24th, 1957, uh, the two got married in Riggins. Took, took their little honeymoon right up here in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, Ward's brother, Tom, moved out of the house. The two of them shared. Grandma Betty moved in and they started saving up for their first house together. And before we go further into the history of Pop Ward, uh, let's talk for a second about the town where they built their lives, uh, where they raised their kids, where their, their daughter, Charlene, raised her kids, me and my sister, Donna. I didn't know much uh, about my hometown 
prior to the, this week, like as far as the history. Uh, <laughs> and this is the last history lesson, by the way. Uh, the rest of it's just pop award info. Uh, Riggins today, this kind of shocked me when I dove, uh, dove into it. Only about 250 people left, 258 in 2019. Had over 400 when I went to high school, over 500 when I was a little kid in grade school. It, it peaked out at around 600 in 1960. The U.S. Census first took note of Riggins in 1910. Just 60 people lived there at that time. 60 people lived where the Little Salmon River flows into the main fork of the salmon. A lot less snow there than where Grandpa grew up in Cascade. I'm sure he loved that. Just 34 inches of snow per year, which seems high to me, actually. Most of the winter, no snow is on the ground in town of Riggins. It's at the bottom of a little canyon. Uh, only two months have an average low of at or below freezing. Just December and January, the bottom out exactly at freezing, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. In July and August, the average low is just 65 and the average high is 95. It's hot, over 100 on a regular basis. It's pretty good weather-wise. A lot more snow and a lot colder weather uh, just a half hour south and uh, an hour to the north on the only highway that cuts through town, Highway 95, but Riggins like this little banana belt kind of climate. Uh, Shout out to the Riggins Chamber of Commerce and Harold Wisdom. Grandma Betty went to high school with his sister, Betty Jane Wisdom, uh, for this next bit of info. Because previous info on the web, and this was just posted uh, on the web like about a year ago. And previous to about a year ago, the best information you could find about the history of Riggins came from one of my best friend's dad, uh, who I won't name to embarrass him, but he was fucking way off. Like the accepted history of Riggins was off by a lot of the dates, but I'm I'm talking like 30, 40 years. (laughs) Uh, The following is the best explanation of how Riggins came to be that I've ever heard. In 1863, Mike Deasy, a miner, stepped on the way to that, uh, or stopped, excuse me, on the way to the boom town of Florence, as I mentioned earlier. And the still barely around, uh, you know, uh, gold strike town of Warren, went there as a kid, to explore the bar. Uh, A bar in this context being an elevated region of sediment, such as sand or gravel that has been deposited by river flow at the confluence of the Little and Big Salmon Rivers, where the town of Riggins sits today. He found traces of gold on the north end of the bar, just not enough to keep him from heading on to Florence, heading on over. He continued to Florence, and then later at some point, he returned to the bar to do some placer mining while he wintered his horses on the bar. He laid claim to the entire bar from what was to become the Aitken Ranch, just south of town, uh, along the Little Salmon River to what is now North Riggins, at the northern end of the bar. He did some placer mining along the bar, wasn't sure what to do with his claim, didn't find enough gold to hold his interest, uh, placer mining, by the way, is that classic old-timey uh, prospect of dead gold in them hills type of mining most people think of. It's that practice of like separating hel- heavily eroded minerals, like gold from sand or, or gravel. It can mean anything from uh, using a gold pan, right, to sift through the water, get the gold out of there, to a screen to separate the sand from the gold, to a dredge that'll bring up sediment from the river bottom to sift and separate gold from everything else. People still have, today, dredges running around Riggins and the Salmon River. A few little claims burn into the mountains around town too. Other than Mike Deasy, no one dicked around looking for gold in the area that was to become Riggins for about 40 years. Uh, And then in 1891, two men, Johnny Irwin and Charlie Clay, were prospecting for gold on the northern northern end of the bar. They thought they'd found promising ore, but they had to negotiate with Mike Deasy before working their site. Johnny and Charlie traded two spotted ponies and a watch for Deasy's claim to the entire bar. I love it. How much you want for that claim, Deasy? Hmm. How, uh, how does $5,000 sound? Uh, I'll give you two spotted ponies and a watch. And then, deal. Uh, 1893, Johnny Irwin's father, Isaac Irwin Jr., sold his Round Valley homestead for 180 bucks. Round Valley, about 10 miles south of the Hall homestead. Moved his family down to the Little Salmon River, uh, to the bar at the confluence of the you know Big Salmon River, uh, with his wife, Mary, and sons, George, Byron, Noah, and Ike. 
They built their first house on the bar. I love that the original Irwin's homestead was just a few miles away from the Hall homestead. Pop Award would follow the Irwins to Riggins about 60 years later. The Irwins and Clays realized that hydraulic mining was the only practical method of mining that bar. It's the north end of the claim. But there was no ready source of water where they wanted to mine for that purpose. So accordingly, they spent the next two to three years digging this large one mile and a half, or mile and a half long ditch from Squaw Creek to what's uh, called North Riggins to provide water to hydraulic, uh, uh, you know, to this hydraulic mine to mine the bar. Uh, that ditch now runs across my grandma Betty's property. I played in it as a kid. Uh, Pop Ward and Grandma Betty's first home they owned together was in a little block of homes called North Riggins. When I was born, my parents lived in North Riggins. It's where I spent most of my childhood. A ditch runs through North Riggins too, and I lost a lizard. I caught by the high school and told myself it was my pet. Uh, I called him Speedy because he always tried to run away from me, probably because he fucking hated me. And, you know, he wasn't a pet. I kept him on my shoulder, and one day, standing next to that ditch, he jumped off and killed himself. He drowned himself, and that is one of my worst memories. This kid I was like, ah, oh, Speedy hates me so much, he drowned himself in the ditch. A uh, random memory jogged by this uh, story. Anyway, that ditch was dug with just a pick, shovel, and a horse. And then unfortunately, the ore content of the sand was meager and not worth the effort of digging that ditch. But now the Irwins and Clays had a nice piece of land, had a ditch through it that could provide water for homes and crops. Uh, there's, there's a 22-unit set of low-income apartments in the middle of town now called the Irwin Center. My grandma Betty worked across the street from the Irwin Center at the post office for about 30 years. My mom, mom worked next door to the post office at the bank for almost 20 years. Right by the Irwin Center, named after this original uh, settler. Johnny Irwin and Charlie Clay. Uh, I was friends growing up with a descendant of Charlie Clay, Thomas Clay, who lives in Riggins now. Caught a bus with him to school for years. Same bus stop. Worked at the grocery store with his aunt. Uh, Johnny and Charlie decided to capitalize on the fact that the bar was the only sizable piece of level ground along the river, large enough to build stores, hotels, other businesses necessary to support a town. Uh, Dick Noah, Ike Irwin, Charlie Clay then took out homesteads on the bar. Dick homesteaded the north portion of the bar. Ike homesteaded the south portion. Noah and Charlie homesteaded at the center of the bar, which is now the business section of Riggins. If you've ever been to the Chevron station in Riggins, that's where Charlie Clay had one of the original uh, houses in the area. More people soon moved into the area in the late 1890s. Miners heading through town soon started settling down there. Uh, became a supply stop along the Salmon River for miners and loggers mostly. A man named Dick Riggins. Fucking Dick Riggins. That's a powerful name. What's your name? It's fucking Dick Riggins. Uh, <laughs> a lot of a testosterone in that name. He built a small hotel, and livery barn on Charlie Clay's homestead and soon filed to open a post office. And the post office, you know, needed a name for the town. And, and the name a lot of people wanted to give the town, it was the, it was the name of the town at that time, as far as just, you know, what people would call it, was Gougei. Riggins tried to be Gougei. The origin of that name came from a Saturday dance in some schoolhouse nearby when Homer Lavander and Big Markham, that's literally how his name is written in the history books, Big Markham. What's Markham's first name? Big. Why? You fucking know why. Only, only Big Markham could take down Dick Riggins. No, but these two guys got into a fight over a woman named Daisy Trumbull. Oh, Daisy, what a looker. Markham was getting the best of the fight. He's a bigger man. Of course he was. He's big Markham. And then Homer gouged his eye. Some say he gouged his eye could clean out. For a few years, the town was called Gougei. But the government was like, we're not fucking giving a post office to a place called Gougei. <laughs> so Riggins had to come up with a new name. And then the uh, Dick R Riggins suggested Irwin, uh, Clay, Clay Irwin Bar. Those suggestions were rejected because apparently there were already little towns by those names in the U.S., like a couple of each, which is crazy to me. Never heard of towns by those names. Uh, the Postal Department then suggested the name Riggins because there was only one town in Missouri by that name at the time. Uh, the townspeople agreed, but it was going to be not in honor of Dick. This is made clear in the sources. It was in honor of Dick's father, John Riggins, who carried mail to the region for the past couple of years. 
1902, Riggins opened a post office in Dick's Hotel and named it Riggins. Riggins subsequently sold uh, his hotel to another Dick, Dick Irwin. Dick Riggins selling to Dick Irwin. I'll sell this hotel, but only to another Dick. Uh, Dick Irwin and his wife, Leona, bought it. Then the post office was put under the supervision of Leona in 1904. And then it was a town. Now it's a town. Uh, people are ranching cattle, sheep in the nearby mountains for food uh, to be sold to various prospectors. When the National Forest Service Reserve was formed in 1897, there were already almost 14,000 head of cattle and 70,000 sheep uh, permitted on the nearby Nez Perce National Forest. Crops were being grown wherever some flat land was found on the Salmon River Canyon. Uh, as the area prospered, the need for lumber grew and the Salmon River's timber industry was born since it was easier to haul lumber than logs. Uh, lumber was cut in the mountains, packed out on horseback. Uh, so soon roads were built, rough lumber was freighted to town. Eventually there were so, uh, small sawmills up nearly every stream in Gulch, right? My grandpa would work at one of those at Slate Creek. Uh, when the advent of timber sales from nearby public lands in 1945 went down, the lumber industry became the base uh, for the area economy and remained so for many years. The sawmill having the greatest impact on Riggins was the Salmon River Lumber Company originally started by George Jensen. Right, right around 1945. Later, Warren Brown developed the company located at the confluence of the Little Salmon and Main Rivers to include a sawmill, uh, shipping operation, planing mill, dry kiln, and logging operation. And that company was the community's major employer until 1982 when the sawmill burned down. And that's why the population's been decreasing. It's like a whitewater rafting town now, but it just doesn't have as many jobs as it did when there was a sawmill. Warren Brown Sawmill employed uh, my dad at a time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, when he, I don't know what he was doing exactly there. Probably taking a lot of time off, you know, to travel around the country and do God knows what, you know, you get it. Uh, it employed Papa Ward, also his father-in-law, Grandpa John Berman, uh, Grandma Betty's father from Sweden, and John's brother Sig and Oxel, Oxel, Oxel Berman, that guy, Betty's uncle. He would sell Papa Ward and Grandma Betty the land for their first house to, uh, that they would own together. And, and, and that guy terrified me as a kid. He was an old man when I knew him as a kid. He always seemed grouchy. He was fucking, he was big. He was burly. He spoke with a really thick Swedish accent. He seemed very serious all the time. And he had one arm. He'd lost an arm. And instead of having his shirts tailored, he would sometimes just stuff the sleeve without the arm into the front of it in his front shirt pocket. And he was missing parts of three fingers on his remaining hand. And he just, he just had a menacing presence. Uh, he lost his arm in the sawmill, got caught in the planer. It just shredded his arm, mangled it into ground beef. He barely sur survived the blood loss of that wound. Then he retires from the sawmill. And then he takes up fucking woodworking. <laughs> he put a table saw in his shop. And, uh, he, and he lost three different fingertips in three separate accidents over the subsequent years. A uh, few, few of his fingers down to the knuckle. Uh, dude was the epitome of the stereotype of the stubborn Swede. That if I lost an arm in a sawmill accident, priority number one, numero uno going forward, avoid saws. Stay away from extra saws at all costs. He clearly felt differently. That hoingy boingy son of a bitch, he liked to live dangerously. Uh, on May 7th, 1958, my mom, Scandal, was born Full term, less than nine months after my grandma and grandpa got married. What the flipping fuck? So my grandma was pregnant on her wedding night. Ugh! Those two horny kids were knocking it out. No birth control. Couple of raw doggers. Fucking grandpa and grandma raw dog. You get it. Uh, when my mom was born, she's going to fucking kill me. If you ever listen to this, I'll never be allowed home. Pop Ward was 25. Grandma Betty just 18. I hope she never listens to Jesus Christ. Around 1958, my grandma uses her waitress money to buy a small plot of land from her uncle, Oxel. Then Pop Ward built him a house uh, on the weekends and evenings. He wasn't working at the sawmill. Dug out the foundation and cellar with a shovel, no backhoe. Used his own back instead. 
poured the concrete himself, built the house himself. Talk about sweat equity. Grandma Betty said he was always a hard worker. Never wanted for laying around. She said she used her waitress money to buy the house. Grandpa would build the house. Uh, two years later, 1960, one of my favorite stories for my family. Papa Ward, Grandma Betty had their second and only child, my aunt, Stella Jean. How she was delivered is insane. Early in the morning of May 22nd, 1960, around 6 a.m., Grandma Betty goes into labor with her second and final child. She and my grandpa uh, grabbed my mom, Charlene, hopped in their 1950 Plymouth Coupe. Uh, they drop off Charlene at John and Stell's, Grandma's parents, uh, Ward and Betty, then drive a little over 30 miles to New Meadows, take a right to stay on, you know, Highway uh, 95, drive another seven miles to the Tamarack Sawmill. Stell was starting to come out of my grandma's vagina. So grandpa pulled over, ran over, uh, knocked on the door of the owner of the mill's house. Uh, I guess his house was attached to the mill. Asked to use their phone to call an ambulance. And that son of a bitch wouldn't let him in. Wouldn't let him use the phone. Fucking shut the door on him. He was mad, I guess, because that guy, because uh, grandpa Ward woke him up. He was, quote, of no help, said my grandma. What a dick. You know what time it is, buddy? Sorry, my wife is having a baby in that car right now. Please, it's a snowstorm. My wife's having a baby. We, the baby's coming out. Can we please use your phone? And keep me awake longer? No, thank you. I'm going to lay down and forget about not helping a young couple in need of a simple, easy-to-accommodate favor. You can go fuck yourself, slam. I was another 18 miles to council. This is a 20-minute drive to the hospital there, but that baby was coming out right now. My aunt was knocking on my grandma's door, and by door, I mean where her vagina ended, and some other stuff began. I'm actually kind of starting to gross myself out now. Uh, they started driving. And then now around 7 a.m., they pull over on the side of the road in a turnout. There had been a late winter storm. There's snow all over. Grandpa uh, runs around, opens the passenger door, gets down on his knees in the snow, helps deliver the baby right there on the side of the road, uses his farm skills. I'm not even kidding. He hands grandma his daughter, and still umbilical cord, still attached, tries to start the car. It will not start. They're freaking out now. <laughs> he tells grandma, to hold her newborn baby, scoot over to the driver's seat. She holds the baby in one hand, still attached to her, while he runs around to the back to push the car to help get it started, while Grandma uses her free hand to turn the key and pump the gas pedal. Uh, pumps gas, you know, with her foot, obviously. Uh, this car starts, Grandma slides back to the passenger seat. Grandpa drives her the rest of the way to council, where he runs through the snow to ask for a nurse who then runs out of the parking lot to cut the umbilical cord in the car. H how dramatic. It's like something out of a movie. Grandma's then uh, helped into the hospital, where she stays for a few days. Grandpa left his car in the parking lot, walks over to a nearby hotel, stays there for a few days. He, he said he wasn't getting back into that car until grandma came back and cleaned up the fucking mess she made. Get in there, lady. Clean up your blood and baby juice. It's not going to clean itself. No, I'm kidding. That's, that's terrible. No, he cleaned it up. He never said a word about it. He's a gentleman. Uh, the two of them then decided not to have any more kids. I bet. They were traumatized. <laughs> grandma said they were both pretty shook up by that. Yeah, I bet. Uh, for the next 16 years, uh, they raised both their daughters uh, at home until, you know, my mom turns 18 and moves out and they have a great life. Grandma soon gets a job at the sawmill, or grandpa soon gets a job at the sawmill in town and his commute goes from 20 miles to one mile. No stoplights, just a uh, one stop sign. Uh, they buy a few other lots in North Riggins over the years. Uh, grandma, you know, she works for the Forest Service. Then she works for the post office where she'll work for about 30 years. You know, great job. Um... Yeah, he, he builds these rentals by himself mainly. He ended up with five or six rentals in town. They take some family vacations. They get a few dogs. They play some cribbage, rummy, lots of board games in my family, a lot of Yahtzee. Grandma starts a weekly bridge game with friends that she still plays today. Uh, Grandpa quits smoking at the age of 36. He had started smoking at the age of 16. Grandpa bet his mother-in-law, Grandma Stella, silver dollar. He could quit just, just like that because uh, she didn't like him smoking. So he did. Then years later, he told Grandma Betty that he was pretty irritated. Grandma still still hadn't paid him that silver dollar. Uh, Grandpa fished a lot, bought a little boat he kept tied to the bank of the Salmon River below his house. 
Uh, I caught a steelhead with grandpa in the river behind his house in that boat. Uh, hunted deer. He caught salmon and trout, smoked them, tended to his vegetable garden, watched his kids grow. You couldn't get him to eat fish later in life because he said he ate too much from growing up because he was poor. Uh, he got embarrassed when his wife wrestled his daughters in the living room. He would tell them to at least close the blinds for God's sake so the neighbors could watch. Grandma Betty and her two girls, you know, laughing and joking around all the time. Grandpa always watched him shaking his head. At some point, uh, Grandpa became a volunteer EMT for a while, worked uh, for a while as a city inspector. He was very active in the VFW hall there, uh, did a lot of fundraising for them. He became the mayor for a while. Uh, he would help at the Riggins Rodeo every year. He was uh, he was the grand marshal of the parade one year. Uh, he said there was no campaign to run for mayor when he became mayor. He said, uh, quote, he was just the only one dumb enough to do it. <laughs> Interesting political fact about my grandpa. He was a lifelong Democrat in a town that bled and bleeds red. It's about 97% Republican and mostly far right. All of grandpa's friends, and he had many, all Republican, and he would talk to them about politics at a men's breakfast they had every week for years and years. And they disagreed on just about everything political and they stayed friends. How about that shit? Turns out we don't have to hate those uh, who disagree with us politically. Uh, we can actually not be petulant children and we can get along with people who have different political opinions. Who, who would have thunk it? Uh, if my grandpa and his friends didn't tell anyone their political views, you would have guessed they weren't different, right? They, they looked pretty much the same. They had different ideas, different opinions of how things should be run, but they basically lived the same lives, had the same morals. Uh, Pop Ward was also the odd man out religion-wise. A lot of his friends went to church. He didn't. Uh, and Riggins, he, he felt he saw uh, too much hypocrisy with the re religion going on there. There was the party hard bar crowd and the church crowd, and they were the same crowd. And then there was, you know, everybody else. The way my grandpa told it to me, he would watch people, you know, go hard on the bars for a while, cheat on their spouses, ignore their families, uh, waste money on partying, and then feel guilty about it, you know, then be threatened with divorce or get divorced or something, whatever. Then they get real into the church again for a while, get real holier than thou with everyone, and then go right back to party. Just go back and forth for years. Meanwhile, with no church, grandpa remained focused on family and kept his morals consistent. Uh, one Easter, uh, he and grandma and the, and the kids, Charlene and Stell, went to church in town, the Assembly of God where my other grandpa, Bill Cummins, my dad's dad, would later preach for many years uh, when his family moved to town in the mid-70s. Uh, both he and his wife, my grandma Carol, buried not far from Papa Ward right now. And anyway, at this service, the pastor made a point to thank the real Christians who supported the church all year long, didn't just come, you know, for Easter. And grandpa felt singled out by that. And so he just stood up, grandma Betty stood up, and they just walked the fuck out and never came back. Uh, he told me it made him feel kind of disgusted to be judged by those who in his mind were not following Christian ideals nearly as well as he was. Felt he didn't need the pastor's approval. He was already living a righteous life. And, and dear Christian Meat Sacks, I do realize that the people my grandpa found hypocritical do not represent at all, all Christians. Uh, my aunt Stell, the one who uh, got delivered in the car, she's very religious and it never bothered Papa Ward one bit. Uh, 1976, Ward and Betty's eldest daughter, my mom Charlene, graduates from high school at the age 18. She's already dating my dad, Daniel Neil Cummins, who's 22. And uh, from what I understand, who uh, can't totally account for his whereabouts this year or uh, the previous few years, typical. Check this out. Two years earlier, nine women killed by Ted Bundy in Washington, Oregon. Uh, what state neighbors both of those states? What state is the only state to border both Washington and Oregon? Idaho. Where was my dad living in 1974? Idaho. Did Bundy's victims look kind of like my mom? Yep. Did a young Ted Bundy look kind of like my dad when he was young? Mm-hmm. Do police make mistakes sometimes and attribute victims to the wrong killer? Yes. Do I think my dad is actually the guy who killed those Ted Bundy victims? I'm not going to say I think so, but I mean, I mean, fuck, you know, you lay it out there like that, there's a chance. Uh, 1976, my mom, <laughs> my mom, I don't know, that joke still hasn't gotten tired for me. 1976, my mom and dad get married the year after graduation. 
uh, on May 17th, 1977, I am born. Another weird birth in the family. I am barely born. I'm sure you've heard about babies who end up, uh, you know, sometimes tragically strangled to death when their umbilical cord gets wrapped around their neck. It is much more rare, but it sometimes happened. Uh, what happened to me when I was born, uh, my dick got wrapped around my neck and I couldn't breathe for a little while. No one remembers the exact number, but my baby dick was wrapped around my neck either three or four times, which I guess is kind of rare. No, I, no, I was born fine. <laughs> Come on. No, I was born fine. No, uh, I was born with jaundice because my mom, uh, you know, wasn't taking vitamins or vegetables probably. And then I was uh, a formula fed baby, which is probably why I have allergy and digestive problems and a chronically weak immune system. But I'm not upset about that. Not upset about my mom. Uh, Pop Ward was apparently overjoyed that he now had a baby boy around. My mom and Aunt Stell have teased me literally my whole life that Pop Ward uh, considered me more of a son than a grandson and that he liked me more than them. Not kidding. It gets a little weird sometimes. In my grandpa's defense, my mom and sister were shitty kids sometimes growing up. You know, they had to be spanked. I never had to be. I never gave my grandpa any trouble. So maybe if they wanted to be loved more, they should have been fucking cooler kids. You know, think about that. Take some responsibility for how you are as a kid. Uh, My grandma Betty also overjoyed to have a grandkid. I was apparently spoiled rotten as a baby by my grandparents uh, who lived just three houses away when I was born. My mom seems a little annoyed to this day that even as a baby, I seem to want to be around them more than my actual parents, <laughs> which would be pretty annoying as a parent. But maybe they should have stepped up their parent game, right? Made life more fun for me at home. Not going to get down on the floor and play with me, lady? Not going to make me a nummy lunch or a tasty dinner? Huh? Dad? Huh? Not going to play hide and seek? Lawn bowling in the yard? Not going to read me some cool stories? Well, then go fuck yourselves. I'm off to Pop Ward and Grandma Betty's house. Uh, in all seriousness, they really did dote on me. Uh, I don't have any memories of hanging out with Pop Ward uh, before my dad took off to Anchorage, Alaska uh, when I was two. And then my mom and I followed not long after, but I know we hung out a bunch. Uh, I do have a box of postcards somewhere. My grandma write me postcards all the time when I was a little kid. Once I did go to Alaska, pretty adorable. Uh, sometime around the end of 1979, beginning of 1980, my mom and I, uh, leave Riggins to head up to Anchorage, live with my dad. My dad was alone up in Anchorage. This is interesting. In late 79, 80, uh, did you know that five women were apparently killed by the butcher baker serial killer, Robert Hansen? Five women from Anchorage, young women. Do you know that my dad was, uh, really into young women at that time? It is unreal how often this stuff comes up when you really look into it. One woman went missing on June 28th, 1980. Where was my dad that night? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Anyway, Papa Ward and Grandma Betty would head up to visit a few times over the next few years. Uh, my mom and I would then head back down to Riggins for long summer breaks. During one of those early summer breaks, I have my first memories of Papa Ward. Uh, my mom and I spent summers at Papa Ward's and Grandma Betty's house. And I remember him taking me fishing in Lost Valley Reservoir. He called it Lost Lake. Or sorry, Lost Lake Reservoir. I was confusing with Lost Valley, but Lost Lake. Uh, it's about 45 miles from Riggins, down Highway 95 to Tamarack, right? Where that fucking guy wouldn't let him in that one night. Uh, I remember trolling in the little fishing boat he had, catching trout, then catching tadpoles along the shore. I bought a, I brought a bunch of those tadpoles home one summer, put them in a kiddie pool in the backyard, and they grew up and became frogs and hopped away. It's pretty cool kid experience. August 1st, 1982, my sister Donna is born in Anchorage, and apparently I was furious. When she was brought home from the hospital, I demanded that my parents take her back, and they did not, and it's still a little annoying. Now, I'm mostly okay that we kept her. She's pretty good. Uh, 19, 1984, my parents split up. My mom moved my sister and I back with her to Riggins, Idaho. My dad stayed in Anchorage. Uh, five different bodies attributed to serial killer Robert Hansen found in Alaska in 84 and 85, you know, when he was kind of upset about the divorce. So that's uh, also pretty weird. Papa Ward, him being the rock of the family. My first memory of him uh, comes from my final days living in Anchorage. Uh, first memory of him being like the rock of the family. He was 42 years old in 84, a bit younger than I am now, which is so weird for me to think about. Uh, he took time off work, flew up by himself, out of Boise into Anchorage, 
I was a daddy's boy in Alaska. I wanted to stay with my dad after the divorce, uh, but that's just not how things were going to go down. Uh, I was confused. I didn't know any other kids whose parents had been divorced. Uh, when I went back to Riggins, I was actually uh, the only kid in the grade school, as far as I can remember, whose parents were divorced. I was in third grade when I went back. But my grandpa, he knew divorce and he knew how to, how to console me, right? Console me like his shithead dad never consoled him. He was such a rock. Uh, he took Don on me to my favorite restaurant, Skipper's, French fries and clam chowder. I was quite the culinary sophisticate. He took me to Fred Meyer's, my favorite store, got me some G.I. Joe action figures, maybe a He-Man or two. Uh, amazing how much that cushioned the blow a bit. Then he packed all my mom and my and my sister's stuff into a U-Haul trailer and drove his daughter and grandkids back to Riggins, 2,600 miles. I remember laying on the back seat while my sister laid on the floorboards. I remember driving up and down some pretty steep mountains on a pretty skinny highway, being real nervous. My grandpa never seemed nervous. He always uh, drove the family on trips. He always felt safe with him behind the wheel. Listened to a lot of Oak Ridge boys that trip. Elvira, my heart's on fire for Elvira. And I remember they had that breakdown. Ooh, uh, no, it was uh, giddy up, um, bop, um, bop, mile, mile, giddy up, um, bop, um, bop, mile. Whatever happened to the Oak Ridge boys? Uh, Grandpa never caused a wreck, never got in a wreck driving. Uh, he actually never got a single speeding ticket or parking infraction his entire life. About 70 years of driving. Uh, when we got back home to Riggins, I missed the hell out of my dad, but I loved living with Grandma and Grandpa. Pop Ward gave me a BB gun, put me on patrol on a deck he had off the backyard overlooking the Salmon River, flanked by some big pines. I was told to shoot any woodpeckers on sight and not to get caught because it was a big fine to get caught shooting woodpeckers. But they picked a hole in the roof of the shop and they were on the to be killed, to be cold. They were, they were his emus. Uh, I soon learned that woodpeckers, pretty hard to kill. The Daisy air rifle. Tough little birds. Robins, not so much. Poor Robins. They just wanted a worm and then they got fucking shot. They got sniped, right? By Corporal Cummins sitting on the deck. Uh, Grandpa at that time was working uh, construction with a man named Mike Gazinski. Mm-hmm. A dirty pole. God. Uh. Mike had a daughter, Michelle, in my class. Another daughter, Crystal, a few years older. I had crushes on both of them. Beautiful girls who became beautiful women. I have long been tormented and attracted to the dirty poles. Uh, funny that I ended up marrying a ski. My grandpa used to love to tease Mike, who was his best friend at the time, with Pollock jokes. Definitely definitely got some of my ridiculous, stupid humor from my grandpa Ward. Uh, here's, here's the first joke I can ever remember learning. This is a joke I remember my grandpa telling Mike Kaczynski. He said, two Pollocks were out hunting deer way out in the woods. Uh, the first after afternoon, one of them starts feeling sick to his stomach and he heads back to camp to lay down, wait for some gas, some cramping to pass. Second one keeps hunting. Sure enough, he soon shoots himself a buck and he hauls it back to camp. When he makes it back, he finds that the first Pollock is out cold, snoring away. And the second Pollock decides to play a little prank on him. So he guts the deer which I know doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would you, why would you gut it where you shot it? Why would you bring it right to camp to gut it? But that's what he did, okay? And then he decides to push all those guts under a sleeping friend, which somehow doesn't wake him up, which makes even less sense. Uh, it's not really a prank at this point. It's just really nasty and disturbing, but that's how the joke went. So he pushes his guts under a sleeping friend, doesn't wake up. <laughs> and then he goes back to hunt, you know, because apparently they were poachers. And then they decided to get more than one deer piece. He comes back a few hours later, near sunset, finds the first Pollock sitting on a log around a fire. He'd made big grin on his face. And that first Pollock, uh, who was sick, says, oh man, you would not believe what happened when you were gone. Turns out I was a lot sicker than I thought. I laid down to take a nap. And then when I woke up, I realized I'd shit out all my guts. And then with the help of this trusty stick, I got them all back in. And that's it. That's the whole joke, get it? He shoved a whole bunch of deer guts up his ass with a stick. <laughs> Why would he think that was okay to do? Because he's Polish. Because he, you know, because it's a stereotype. Uh, 
Is cancel culture going to now turn on me for retelling this old Pollock joke? <laughs> uh, his, his friend in mind, Mike Kaczynski, just shook his head and said, oh, Ward. Maybe not the best joke, but it, but it made P- Mike and Pop Ward laugh. It made me laugh as a kid, too. Uh, made me laugh when I thought back on it. Wrote it into my notes. Uh, Pop Ward loved a, a good joke. He worked real hard, but he never took life too seriously. Uh, around that same time, I also made my grandpa laugh harder than I'd ever seen him laugh before. Uh, I liked to watch cartoons as a kid. Of course I did. Uh, I was a kid. Uh, when the school bus dropped me off in front of Pop Ward and Grandma Betty's house after school in like third grade, all the way through eighth grade, I would, my routine was I would grab a snack, almost always rich crackers, cheese, and I would lay in front of the TV and watch some cartoons. And one of them was Looney Tunes. And Tom the Cat, one cartoon, he's chasing Jerry the Mouse, oh, he steps on a rake. And it pops up and it flattens his face. And I thought, ah, I wonder if a rake would really do that. Would it really pop up like that? So then late one afternoon, I tried to play a dirty trick on a neighbor kid named Levi. I don't remember a lot about Levi. He only lived nearby for maybe half a year. Uh, the, only, the main thing I remember about him is he ate his own boogers. And I know because he told me. He showed me one day. He was like, you know, you can eat boogers. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, watch. And he picked a booger out of his nose and he ate it. And I just thought like, I probably should never high five this kid again. Probably not gonna be real good friends. And we weren't. But this one day I invited him over. I'd, I'd hidden a rake, some tall grass around the, in the shade around the back of grandpa's house. And I talked him into racing me 10 laps or something around the house, just some nonsense kid shit. And each lap, I would try to steer him into stepping on that rake. And he never did. And then that booger eater wised up and he realized what was happening and he got mad and he stomped off, went home. So now I still didn't know if a rake would pop up and smack you in the face like he did on that cartoon. So now I laid that rake out in the backyard, out in the sun, and I started stepping on it cautiously at first with one arm raised to catch it should it pop up. But it didn't budge. Didn't pop up. I thought I had a bum rake. I started getting frustrated. So I started stepping on it harder, harder. Still nothing. I get really frustrated. Pretty soon, I jump up in the air, stomp down on the rake with both feet, forget to put my hands up. And that son of a bitch hit me in the fucking head so hard, it flattened me out of my back, like like cartoonishly. Like arms out, almost knocked me unconscious. I was seeing stars uh, and a lump formed on my forehead almost instantly, right? I ran in the house crying. Told my grandpa what had happened. <laughs> and he was like, you what? And I told him again. And then, and then he just laughed the hardest I had ever seen a grown man laugh. Oh my God. My grandma gave me some ice, you know, put on my head and life went on. Papa Ward, uh, not one to feel sorry for you if you did something stupid like that or if you fell down. My first instinct when somebody falls down is to laugh. Uh, <laughs> uh, grandpa's first instinct was just to shake his head and be disgusted with you. Like be mad at you for hurting yourself. <laughs> that, that was the exception to the rule, I guess, the rake. Um, I'm not known now as a big nurturer in the family. Like if you have a legit reason to cry, something related to some big emotional event, okay, I get it. But most of the time I'm just annoyed. I'm more of a suck it up than a cry it out type of person. I get that from Pop Award. This is a story my sister decided to share with me to uh, share on this suck about Pop Award. One of her favorite stories uh, illustrating this. Uh, Grandpa Ward and Grandma Betty, they would drive out into the mountains all the time uh, when they were married. They would still do that well into uh, his 80s to go get wood for his wood stove. Go cut down a tree with a chainsaw, you know, chop it up and carry it in the truck. He's doing this in his 80s. So he and Graham's out in the middle of nowhere, up the Salmon River. She's down at the base of the hill by the truck. He's up way above the road. He hollers down for her to toss him the oil can for his chainsaw. And Graham's not known to have a good arm. My sister and her play on the same cornhole team for little family get-togethers. And they are fucking ridiculously bad. Like, they're like, how is it even possible to be that bad? How can you not throw a thing even 10 feet in front of you? My sister has the upper body strength of a normal person who has just had both of their arms like severely broken. I'm pretty sure she's never been able to do literally one push-up in her whole life. And she gets that from my grandma, Betty. Neither winning any arm wrestling tournaments anytime soon. Uh, and this day, grandma tries to throw that oil can up the hill to pop a ward. 
<laughs> he's up the mountain away. So she plants her feet, winds up, flings it with all her might, and it goes up behind her. And th- that makes her laugh. He's not amused. He's just staring at her deadpan annoyed. So she grabs it again. Now she's laughing. Tells her not to worry. She's going to get it this time. She winds up. This is a woman in her late 70s. <laughs> goes to throw it. Somehow flings the can further behind her and flings herself back on the ground. And now she's laughing so hard she has tears running down her, running down her face. He doesn't even crack a smile. <laughs> she eventually gets up, goes to grab the oil. He doesn't come to check on her. Doesn't make sure she's okay. She grabs the oil can. Uh, they, they, you know, brings it up the hill to him. And then they, you know, make it home with their wood haul a little bit later. Later, grandma is telling the story to Donna and grandma's laughing so hard she can barely get the words out. Tears in her eyes again. Donna is also cry laughing. They're both dying. Papa Ward is in the recliner, sitting next to them listening, still can't see the humor in it. He finally mutters, totally disgusted. Well, grown ass woman, can't even throw a can. And he gets up, wanders off into the kitchen. And then that made Donna and Graham laugh even harder. They were like almost on the floor again. And he just shook his head in his disgust and just left the house for a little bit. <laughs> he didn't think that was funny, but he did have a sense of humor. He liked a good practical joke. The best one he ever pulled uh, that I know of uh, by far went down around 1985, 1986 when he was eight or nine. He was uh, 43, 44 years old. He's about my age now. He had little rental homes in Riggins. On one spring day, after one of his tenants moves out, he finds a marijuana plant in the guy's bedroom or his grandpa would call it some wacky tobacco. And he decides to use this wacky tobacco to mess with his friend and neighbor who lived two houses down the street, Buckhorn, Buckhorn Lawrence. Buckhorn was a character, as you might imagine, based on a guy being called Buckhorn. Not sure what his real name is. Everyone just knew him as Buckhorn. And you, 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 if you forgot his name, it was easy to remember it because you could just look at his belt buckle and it would say Buckhorn on it. Uh, he always wore blue jeans, cowboy boots, big ass uh, belt buckle, uh, you know, some kind of Western shirt, cowboy hat off him, drove a logging truck for Robinson Logging. Uh, like a lot of people around Riggins where I grew up, for whatever reason, he despised hippies. <laughs> and wacky tobacco, he thought that was a hippie drug. So he hated it. One thing he didn't hate was his vegetable garden. He grew like my grandpa did, you know, like corns, potatoes and stuff, tomatoes. And in some p- hidden part of the garden, Grandpa Ward planted that marijuana plant. And he assumed Buckhorn would soon find it and be a little bit annoyed, but not too annoyed. Oh, well, he didn't. That plant grew all summer. <laughs> Pop Ward later said he was going to tell him about it, but then it was just, it was too big. It was huge. And he was afraid he was really going to piss him off. So then it just keeps growing. And Pop Ward started to get a little nervous for Buckhorn. Since growing weed in Idaho, you know, it's still illegal, but it was like more illegal then. This is during like the Nancy Reagan war on drugs, Idaho era. And an Idaho County Sheriff's deputy lived across the street from Buckhorn. Despite all that, Pop Ward at the end ended up taking the joke even further. He bought a bumper sticker that said, a friend, in, a friend with weed is a friend indeed. And he slapped that on the back of Buckhorn's big dually GMC Sierra or Ford F-350 or whatever truck. And Buckhorn drove around town with that bumper sticker. A friend with weed is a friend indeed for over a week. And then one day, this is like one of my favorite memories from childhood. It's so crystal clear in my head. I was laying down in the living room in front of the TV, watching right those cartoons. Grandpa's watching, uh, uh, you know, uh, stuff with me. You know, before dinner, sit in the recliner. All of a sudden, I hear this booming voice yelling from down the street, Ward, Ward, God damn it, we need to talk. Ward, get out here. <laughs> My grandpa perks up out of the recliner and he goes, Danny, get up and lock the door. And so I did. And I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm kind of afraid. And then uh, <laughs> as Buckhorn is storming up the driveway to the front door, grandpa yells at me, and close the curtains. So I run over, I close the curtains. As this angry, red-faced, giant, belt-buckled, cowboy logger dude storms up and then starts pounding on the front door. My grandpa is nervous laughing uh, as Buckhorn is just still yelling, Ward, I know you're in there. Then after maybe 30 seconds, Buckhorn gives up, walks back home. I ask grandpa, what the hell is going on? Like, again, I'm, I'm scared. And he tells me the story. <laughs> I thought it was so funny then. 
And I thought, I, I think it's funnier now. He told me that he would go talk to Buckhorn after he had time to calm down for a few days. And he did. And eventually they went back to being buds. Uh, Pop Ward, man, he made life fun. He loved to joke and tease and get a rise out of people. He loved to say something crazy, then turn to me and wink and laugh uh, so hard at himself. Man, laughter, not taking life so damn seriously. And it's so healthy, right? There's a lot of, a lot of tense, outrage culture web trolls out there right now. And they could, they could use some Pop Ward, right? Maybe, maybe uh, you know, pull that big, unnecessary indignation, easily offended stick out of their asses. Uh, around this time, in addition to helping mold my sense of humor, Pop Award also helped mold my work ethic. Uh, who knows what I wanted at the time when I was a kid? You know, like comic books, the grocery store, toys, video games, something. Uh, I wanted to buy people presents on their birthdays, my own money, Christmas presents, whatever. I, I could be a pretty sweet kid. And Grandpa gave me a job to make money so I could do that. Uh, Grandpa first paid me to trim a hedge in the front yard with some old school, giant scissor-looking hedge clippers. Take me forever to do it. But I felt proud of myself when it was done. I got a couple bucks. And he gave me five bucks to mow and weed eat the lawn uh, when I had to pick some of the weeds by hand. And then when I wanted to make more money, he had me uh, talk to a variety of neighbors in the neighborhood, ask if I could mow their yards. Some gave me five bucks, some a little less, some a little more. Pretty soon I was mowing, I don't know, four or five, six yards a week, making some money. Uh, Grandma Betty got me a bank book, taught me how to make deposits, how to save, how to spend, right? Make sure I could save up for what I wanted. So simple, them doing this, but so valuable. Like if no one ever teaches about money, like working money as a kid, how are you supposed to be responsible with it as an adult? Uh, Grandpa kept working with Mike Kaczynski until the mid-90s when he was in his mid-60s. Then he retired, started tending to his rental properties more, tending to his vegetable garden more. Uh, in the mid-90s, he moved into the house that Grandma Betty lives in now, that one she grew up in. He helped take care of his mother-in-law for the final 10 plus years of her life. Uh, Grandma Stell, she could be cranky as hell. And he never complained. Not that I heard. He did sometimes pinch her butt when I was around. And then he would laugh and wink at me after she turned and hit him and cursed him in Norwegian. And she would laugh too and tell him that he was crazy. <laughs> uh, inappropriateness it is definitely in my genes. We're, we're a big butt slapping, butt pinching family. Uh, Pop Award, Grandma Betty gave each other uh, or gave each of their grandkids some money for college over the next several years. I would have never studied abroad for a semester without them. Uh, they bought each of their daughters new cars, some Subaru Outbacks three times over, over the years. Uh, they, they drove to Jackpot, Nevada several times a year to play the slots at Cactus Pete's. When a tribal casino opened near Lewis, Idaho, they drove there a few times a year. Uh, when they added a tribal casino at Worley, about a half hour uh, south of Suck Dungeon, uh, you know, a little over 10 years ago, they started driving there. And his grandkids who wanted to come along and hang out with them, uh, or any grandkids who wanted to come along and hang out with them, we would get to uh, have our own hotel room to sleep in, some cash to play with. So we could sit next to them, play the penny slots. They loved it. When grandpa would hit a $500 jackpot, it was like he won fucking $10 million. He'd be so happy. He'd be grinning for hours. If he was on a losing streak, if he's a couple hundred dollars down, well, then they were going home early. And he would complain for weeks about how they tightened up the machines, they were cheating, and he was never going to go back. And then he would go back. Uh, he never got tired of trying to beat the casinos. <laughs> he now also never gambled more than he could afford to lose. And they were always quick to point that out, right? They had a set amount of money. When that was gone, it was gone. Uh, that they were going to gamble with that weekend or whatever. He sat, he sat near his grandma Betty. They would play together like, uh, you know, like the two kids who'd been married over 60 years earlier. Grandpa having a beer, grandma having an Amaretto and Coke. They'd laugh, enjoy each other's company like they'd done, you know, after those first dates after they met at Somerville's. Uh, he wasn't always annoyed with her for not being able to throw a can up the hill of, of oil. Uh, they'd hold hands when they'd walk back to their room. Then they'd cuddle up in bed. I don't know how grandma slept around him. That dude would snore loud enough to wake up the entire neighborhood. Uh, and then this past summer, out working in the yard like he'd done thousands of times before, he suddenly fell down and lost consciousness. Came to, had to be helped to the house. 
It uh, seems that he probably had a minor heart attack, maybe a stroke. We never found out for certain, but he was never the same after that. He lived a really good, healthy life right up until that. Very lucky. Uh, and then he uh, had to try and jump through some hoops because of COVID to get more doctor's appointments. It was a huge, crazy pain in the ass. It went on for months. Uh, his legs kept growing weaker and weaker until he could barely walk. Our family rallied around him, took a lot of trips to Riggins last year to help him with the yard work, which he hated. He hated seeing others do his work, work to find so much of him. Doctors finally found out that his heart wasn't pumping near the amount of blood it was supposed to around his body. Had some clogged arteries. Turned out he had been born with a heart defect and he had powered past it and outworked almost everyone around him despite that for about 88 years. Now he needed three different heart valve procedures to get his legs working again and also have some arteries, you know, cleaned up to get his uh, mobility back. He was ready for all that. He wanted that. He wanted the operations, no fear. But then uh, uh, a few months before he passed, they found cancer in his lungs and then it was game over. They, they couldn't operate. Doctors gave him maybe a year or longer to live, but grandpa had other plans. Once he found out he couldn't get surgery, he, he was pretty much done. I remember my great grandma being the same way in my family. Uh, once, uh, you know, her health started to go a little bit, she had been alone. I remember telling her one time, she was like 95. I'm like, gotta make 200. And she literally, <laughs> she literally said, she goes, why? She goes, my friends are dead. My husband's dead. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, why am I still here? <laughs> I know that is kind of dark, but also I'm like, yeah, it's kind of best case scenario to make it to that point. Um, you know, grandpa, once he found out he couldn't be operating, he, he didn't want to be around anymore. He, he told me once, a couple months before he passed, he goes, Danny, this is no way to live. I'm ready to go. Um, when I asked him once uh, how he was doing near the end, he just laughed and goes, not good. I'm dying. Uh, last time I saw him this past November, he had a hard time standing up and embarrassed him. He, he was weak. It was hard to see. He'd always been so strong. Uh, he pulled me in close uh, for a hug. Last time I hugged him, uh, last time I talked to him in person, he said, enjoy your life. Man. Man, how powerful is that, right? He's thinking about me living as he's dying. Whew. Well, <sighs> thought I was, was going to make it through this one. Everyone listening, you should try and do the same, right? Live while you have life, you know? Best case scenario, one day uh, you'll be where he was at just a few months ago. The Reaper doesn't take days off. Right? He's always waiting. So while the sun still shines on you, Right? Whenever you can, like, uh, uh, you know, get a little moment of happiness, you fucking take it. Steal it. While you can still suck air into your lungs. Enjoy your life, Meat Sacks. That's what Papa Ward would say to you. Enjoy your life. Whatever hand you're dealt with, deal with it. Work with it. Because it's the only hand you got. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. And once again, I, I thought this was going to be a short episode this week, but I just can't help myself, apparently. Uh, the more I thought about Papa Ward, the more stories just kept floating up. <laughs> this could have been a six-hour episode. Uh, I could have talked about how much he enjoyed sharing food with his family, right? How he, how he loved pickling cucumbers. He grew those in his garden, too. Bottling fruit, drying fruit, I guess is what you call it. I, dehydrating it, dehydrating it, maybe. Uh, making jams and jellies. He grew pears, plums, peaches, nectarines. He loved canning peaches and pears. Man, Papa Ward's peaches. And his pears were delicious. Uh, Kyler Monroe loved them when they were little. They loved playing a game of rummy, game of Yahtzee with the family around the table. Oh, man, if he was winning, same big-ass grin like he was winning the casino. Uh, if Grandma was beating him, uh, he would half-joke that she was cheating. He seemed actually convinced that she must be, must be cheating to beat him. Uh, <laughs> uh, he loved building these little stone churches that he would give to everybody. Oh, we got several of them in the house right now. Funny, funny how he wasn't religious, but he built these little stone Christian churches. 
uh, buy little figurines to, to kind of decorate them with, to create these little scenes. He got way into that for years. Loved going on a long walk and loved telling you that he could outwalk you. He'd still do that when he's in his 80s. All right, how you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. He'd say, I'm, I'm good. I could walk you know, a couple more miles. Uh, he hated laziness, hated laziness, hated people who were mean to their kids or not there for them. I think you know why. Uh, he loved a good nap in his recliner and he could fall asleep so fast. He could be, he could be talking one moment and then just sound asleep the next. When I asked him how he could take a nap so easily, he once said, it's easy to sleep when you got a clean conscience. <laughs> uh, more good advice. Uh, he loved, he loved music. He didn't listen to music a lot, but he did love it. He loved going to old time fiddlers, kind of little get togethers that would swing through town sometimes. Uh, Fats Domino was his favorite. Blueberry Hill seemed to be his favorite song. He also loved Willie Nelson. I uh, loved to watch the Atlanta Braves play baseball. The Boise State University Broncos play football. I like to watch the uh, news. I like to shake his head at the state of the uh, of the world outside of Riggins. Uh, and before I wrap up this suck of his life, my sister Donna has another story about Pop Ward she'd like to share to show who he is. She said, uh, uh, when she was little, my sister loved Pop Ward and Grandma Betty's house just like I did. After he moved to Riggins, moved out of their house into a house just across the road from them, one they owned, uh, they really became extra parents to us both. Uh, Donna used to get confused, accidentally called Grandma Betty mom. <laughs> uh, we were there so often, I'm sure uh, mom, our mom loved that. Um, <laughs> uh, Donna would sit on his lap when she was little, flip his comb over, over his head. Oh, God, he had a comb over for so many years. It would dangle down the right side uh, of his face, and then she would braid his hair. I did that too. Uh, he was very tolerant of all that. He loved to have both of us on his lap. Uh, he would give Donna the occasional sip of Keystone Light. If Donna had an extra bad day in kindergarten or first grade, she would head to Papa's house, tell him about it first before mom got home from working in the grocery store. Uh, like when she got in trouble for grabbing boys by their shirts and spinning them around as fast as she could, flinging them across the grass because they made her mad at recess. Uh, and then he would tell her not to worry about it, not let those boys be mean. Then he would send her across the road to go play with her, bus, uh, her best buddy, Leah Catherman. And then uh, they, had a, they had a system. She would go play. And then when mom came home, he would stop over at grandpa's house first. And then he would smooth things over with mom and make her swear that Donna wouldn't get in trouble. And then Donna would call the house uh, to make sure the coast was clear. And then she would come home to Papa's house. <laughs> For our mom, it was infuriating. But as a kid, it was pure gold. Uh, after her first year away in college, Donna came back home, lived in grandma and papa's bunkhouse where grandpa Frank lived at one point. Great grandpa, great, great grandpa Frank, my God, uh, over summer break. She was working construction with our dad, but she wasn't really built for it. You heard about her upper body strength. Uh, she came home after the first day of hard labor, battling young uh, boys at the job site, completely covered in paint. She'd been painting ceilings, working as labor all day, and she was near tears. She was so sore. Papa knew that. He didn't have to be told that her pride was on the line or that it mattered. Uh, he barely chuckled when she got home, led her by the hand to the shed out back, scrubbed her down with turpentine. Uh, no words were exchanged, right? Uh, they didn't talk. She tried not to cry out of frustration. They laughed a little, and then he handed her a keystone light. He was good that way. He knew what it was like to be the underdog, to hold your pride together, the value of hard work. Uh, wasn't something to be mocked, something to be quietly respected. Also knew the value of an ice-cold, shit-cheap beer on a hot summer day. He kept the fridge stocked for the rest of the summer. She still drinks Keystone Light on occasion, but it has to be a, a wicked hot day after a hard day's work outside. So thanks for sharing that, Donna. Uh, Pop Ward used to tell me you're a good man, Charlie Brown. If so, I learned from one of the best. I, I was talking the other day with Joe and, and Zach here. Reverend Doctor, script keeper here in the Stuck Dungeon about parenting, about what makes a good parent. And we arrived at this point about how a lot of it boils down to respect. I mean, not always, of course, there's going to be aberrations. Some kids have developmental, uh, you know, situations, uh, behavioral problems. But for a lot of kids, it boils down to respect, you know. And if you don't live a respectable life, why should your kids respect you? They're not going to listen to you as much if they don't respect you. You know, that old adage, do as I say, not as I do. Always thought that was bullshit, you know, because it is. Grandpa never had to get after me 
uh, when I was around him, I always told the, towed the line he set. Uh, far worse than a spanking or a grounding from my parents was a disgusted look of disapproval from Pop Ward. That shit killed me because I respected him so much, right? It, it meant so much to get, to get uh, you know, to have him respect me. Uh, I told him as much a year ago. Lindsay encouraged me to tell Pop Ward and Grandma Betty how much they meant to me before it was too late. I'm so glad I did. Uh, they told my mom later, you know, about made them cry. Uh, so tell your Pop Ward and Grandma Betty's, if you got them, tell them how much they, they matter to you or the other people in your life, right? You never know when it's going to change. So hail Pop Ward. May Nimrod set you on some kind of cosmic throne. May Lucifina comfort you until Grandma Betty joins you. Bojangles, be extra good. You can't stand a disobedient dog. Uh, and Triple M, take a set break. We love you. But he prefers Fats Domino and some Blueberry Hill. Time for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, 1894. That's when Nashville's Samuel Hall got his homestead land title for 160 acres near uh, and now partially under Cascade Lake. About three decades after that first white man, Packer John, Packer Johnny, wandered through Valley County's Long Valley. Number two, May 22nd, 1960. That's when my aunt was born in the passenger seat of a 1950 Plymouth Coupe on the side of the road between New Meadows and Council. Papa Ward helped deliver her. Uh, Grandma Betty <laughs> had to then turn the key as she held her baby born just a few minutes earlier while Papa Ward pushed the car through the snow to help start it. Number three, Papa Ward's dad, my great-grandpa Charlie, was a colossal asshole and a selfish drunk. Fuck him. Uh, number four, lead by example. You want others around you to raise their game? Raise your own game first. You can't command respect if you're not respectable. I feel like that's uh, straight from Papa Ward. And number five, new info. Jamie Jean and Elliot Davis, two awesome dudes living uh, out in Nashville, uh, have been filming a documentary on Time Suck, filming footage for a couple years now. At some point, it will be released. We have no idea when. Uh, but they interviewed Pop Ward and Grammy Betty to see what they thought about me a little over a year before he passed. So meet the man, the myth, the legend. Here are a few minutes from, uh, you know, the two most influential people in my life. We've had a very good relations with our yeah. grandkids. Yeah. yeah. Well, Especially with Danny. Yeah. He was, we always called him a motor <laughs> mouth when he was younger. Okay. That's all he did was talk, yeah. Easy. You couldn't shut him up. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Must have like got it. it from his mother. <laughs> we'll blame her anyway. He lived down the street. Down the street from us there in Riggins. I used to call him the absent-minded professor. <laughs> he would come up and get a house key, forget to bring it home. I don't know how many we made. Probably Gordon 10. Eddie raised Dad. I mean, they were just so much a part of his everyday life. Breakfast at their house, lunch at their house, dinner at their house, just like. I basically raised him there for two or three, well, both of them, him and his daughter, or sister too, right. mm -hmm. for about three years. We just treat him like anybody else, you know. We don't think of him as, we don't think of him as, as, a, a, as a celebrity. No, as somebody on He's stage. He's just a damn grandkid. Yeah. <laughs> Danny's high school graduation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was. Uh, you know, when they walked down the aisle, he was a salutatorian. And my mother, when she was sitting by me, and I never noticed because they were walking with the gowns, and she said, look at Danny. He doesn't have any shoes on. <laughs> they had their gowns on. And you know, shorts. And they had their boxer shorts on. <laughs> and then and, uh, they had. <laughs> Riggins had never seen anything like that before. I was a weirdo. You want to ask him yeah. about it. 
So what's the what's the first uh, that you hear of him doing comedy? Well, I was kind of worried about <laughs> it because you know it had to be some rough spots, and I still worry about him. You know, all that flying and everything. You know, I don't know. Is you just can't help but worry about yeah. him a little bit. I know he's all right, but he's still, still, he's still there. We haven't seen too much. We went well up to Spokane <laughs> one, I love this. well twice, and then to Boise once and seen him on set, and then uh, some of the language he uses. <laughs> We're not used to that. Of course, it don't bother me, but yeah. you know, enough's enough. <laughs> I told him one time, Danny, you can be funny uh, without using that F word. <laughs> What he said. He said, I like to say it. <laughs> you know, he's made a good living, you know, so we appreciate that. And we support him for what uh, he does. And he's very much a family man. And he and he's very conscientious and he's thoughtful. Right. You know, he never forgets Ward's birthday or my birthday. <laughs> These sounds are Kyler Monroe playing with Pop Award. Come here. I got you now. I got you now. Come back here. Come back here. I, I, I still to this day don't know where those keys went. It's a mystery. It's a family mystery. I must have lost at least 10 of them. Uh, he didn't care for, for, the, for the profanity, but he did care for me. And uh, yeah, me and Ryan Shaw. Yes, we did flash the townsfolk of Riggins. One of my many questionable decisions in my youth. Uh, I do like to say the F word still. <laughs> I really do. Uh, uh, thank you everyone for listening to that. That was, uh, that was pretty special. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Pop Award has been sucked. 1932 to 2020. Gone, but certainly not forgotten. Thanks to, uh, thanks to the Space Scissors who voted that topic in. Uh, you know, it really kind of forced me to look at his life in a way I honestly probably would have never done uh, had you not voted that topic in. Just because, you know, we get busy, you know, you focus on work, different things. It was, yeah, special this week. Uh, <laughs> come on. All right. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team uh, for all the help in making Time Suck. Queen of uh, Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie the Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan the Art Warlock, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com. Working on the socials with Liz Hernandez. And again, the uh, new improved customer service email store at badmagicproductions.com. Still hoping to get the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page back online. Fucking Facebook. Goddamn. I've had so many fucking Facebook problems this past week. Talking with some people at Facebook. They're very nice, but they've got a lot of fucking rules right now. Uh, they're very confusing. Wish we could speed things along. Uh, now shifting gears big time. Next week, not going to be an emotional episode. For me, at least. Uh, going to be sucking a serial killer again. We're going to go true crime again with a little-known serial killer named Carrie Stainer, a.k.a. the Yosemite Killer. You may have heard of his brother, Stephen Stainer, who was the kidnapping victim of Kenneth Parnell, a notorious pedophile who kept Stephen for seven years captive. Such a weird convergence of stories. Uh, meanwhile, Carrie grew up in a home that was physically together but emotionally broken while his brother was away. He would receive no counseling from his parents about his missing brother. And to make things even worse, he would later claim to have been molested by an uncle when his brother was missing, when Carrie uh, was 11. So much going on in one family. It's a crazy story. Carrie's only refuge from uh, the pain in his life was Yosemite, the park where he felt at peace. 
In nature alone, he camped and hiked and seemed to find some stability, but the tragedy would continue outside of the park. With Stephen dying an early death and Carrie's uncle, the one who molested him, getting murdered when Carrie was living with him, police still not sure if Carrie murdered his uncle or not. Probably. Uh, he for sure murdered some other people. In the spring and summer of 1999, Carrie Stainer brutally murdered four women, three women in February, who were staying at the Cedar Lodge where he worked and one woman, a park worker, in June. He would sexually assault two of his victims, decapitate one, nearly cap decapitating another. In February, the FBI canvassed the area for anyone they could find uh, who could perpetrate such a horrifying, you know, violent crime. Carrie would lurk right under their noses until June when he would murder again. Investigators described him as uh, seeming too nice and too normal to be a suspect. And they were wrong. Uh, the horrifyingly sad story of Stephen Stainer and the equally terrifying life of his brother, Carrie Stainer, next week on Time Suck. And now let's head over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Lots of interesting Elon School messages pouring in this week. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Okay, I'm keeping this first updater, this main updater anonymous because I don't want him to get in any more trouble at work than I've already gotten him in. He writes, good afternoon, Dan King sucker and Bojangles bitch. I discovered time suck from scared to death. Now I can't get enough of either one. That's great. Thank you. Sometimes I try to make my commute a little longer just so I can listen to more. Need to share this update, an incident with you. First, the update. I was excited to hear that you'd be sucking the Elon school. When I was in high school in the mid nineties, some of my finer teachers and one guidance counselor would use the Elon school as a threat if we didn't straighten out. Living uh, a little more than an hour from this quote unquote school made the threat seem more real. My father was the middle school principal and knew some of the happenings at that school, and the topic was hush-hush in his school. But in my high school, it was the last resort. We always heard that they were strict, ran a tight ship, but never heard the true horrors you described. I never knew anyone that went there, thankfully. I recently passed by the school for work, and it is an abandoned pile of shit rotting in the woods now. Good. Uh, clearly, this guy was not from Maine. We may be backwoods up here, but we're not cruel. Now to something slightly funnier. I totally got Cummins Lod. Uh, actually, he actually wrote a uh, Dumman's Lod, not Cummins Lod, where Time Suck plays at an inopportune time, but a Time Suck reference gone horribly wrong. Have you ever used the phrase calm down, killer, or relax, killer, when someone gets worked up about a subject? At my work, we have a pretty diverse workforce. There's a guy from Bulgaria that works in the same building as me. Being an ignorant American, I put Bulgaria as part of Russia. Anyway, the Bulgarian I work with was out at the smoking area, and I walked by him as he was getting fired up about something. So I looked at him and said in my best Russian accent, calm down, Chikatilo. <laughs> I thought it was funny and I walked away snickering to myself. Later that day, I was called into HR <laughs> and I had to explain why I said what I said. Apparently he knew of Chikatilo and he did not find that funny. Now I have to attend a sensitivity training. I hope you find this as funny as I still do. Sorry for the short email. Three out of five stars, wouldn't change a thing. Keep on sucking, soon to be your newest space lizard and king of Dumman's law. I call myself Captain Dinkwad. Well, good luck with your sensitivity training, Captain Dinkwad. I sincerely hope you are not fired. If you do get fired, though, uh, before leaving, you might as well just throw out, you know, what this big deal? So I took off and saw, uh, saw, saw Shamecock in the corner. I bother no one. Uh, glad to hear what was once the Elon School now lay in ruins. Uh, now a random positive drug update that I loved hearing from super sucker Kyle uh, Therio. Therio? Theriot? Therio. Uh, Kyle writes, uh, hey, fellowship of the suckers. I've been hearing for years now about Dan's opinion on drugs and how he wants them all to be legal. <laughs> True. Well, that might be sooner than later. Washington State just passed the Pathways to Recovery Act, 
which will decriminalize the use of hardcore drugs like crack cocaine, et cetera, putting more money into rehabilitation and also letting people be responsible for themselves if they choose to make horrible choices. But anyways, thought you'd be interested. Keep on sucking. Hail Nimrod. Yes, Kyle. Uh, thank you for the link. Yes, the Washington State House Public Safety Committee voted seven to six to approve the Pathways to Recovery Act, which would remove penalties for personal use amounts of illegal substances, just all of them, and expand outreach and recovery services. The vote is the first time a panel of lawmakers in any U.S. state has voted to remove criminal penalties for possession of all drugs. Well, it's about fucking time. Legalizing drug use, all drug use, will not send our culture into some depraved death spiral. I don't know why people think that. It's just a bunch of bullshit morality posturing. Not saying some drugs aren't bad. Some of them are really bad. I'm just saying that kicking people when they're down for using them is fucking stupid. It's so fucking stupid. Punish harmful crimes committed by those on drugs. Don't punish people for using the drugs. Tired of stuffy old men who I'd rather kick in the fucking nuts than have a drink with deciding what's right and wrong for the rest of us. Uh, Now another Elan-related message. Like those Elan kids, sweet sucker Sean had a shit time in the system. And he writes, hello, Suckmaster and crew. Latest episode hit me hard. Without going into great detail, I spent most of my formative years in the system. It is tough feeling abandoned, blaming everyone and being victimized. Uh, I mean, obviously. As humans, our primary responsibility is to grow our little meat sacks into safe, successful adults, yet these type of caretakers still exist. It's outrageous. It's been 20 years since I left the system. It still haunts me to this day. It has brought up some shit for me with this episode, but I want to thank you. Thank you for sharing their stories and bringing to light how children become victims and have nowhere to go and often no one to advocate for them. I hope it will cause more people to question. Always be curious when it comes to the care of the children around them. I found my family in this cult. That's all that I need. You hope our minds remain open. Our hearts remain in Nimrod's belly button, Sean. Thank you, Sean. I'm glad that you're out of the system. Sorry we're so fucked for you. Uh, hope this episode helped in some way uh, as well, you know, in addition to the Elon School episode. Pop Award, not in the system, but, you know, he might have been better off had he been. Uh, I have a feeling he was abused pretty severe- severely. And, uh, and with, I imagine, a lot of effort, he worked really hard to get himself into a, a much better life uh, than those who were supposed to protect gave him, you know, who, who were supposed to protect him gave him. Uh, glad we can be here for you, dude. Also, a lot of time suckers since the Cult of the Curious Facebook page has shut down have bounced over to the Scared to Death, Creeps and Peeper private Facebook page, and also the Is We Dummies Facebook page. So you can search in the Facebook search bar for both of those groups and find a lot of the people that you were talking to while we await the Facebook God's decision. Uh, now for another Elan-related message from another meat sack, victimized as well in a too unre- unregulated system. My God. Emma, I'm going to leave her last name out of this, writes, Hey, Dan. I've been a huge fan of your stand-up for many years. Now time suck and STD. Listening to the lawn school slash cult of Synanon suck. It brought back many memories of when I was in a cult-like group in high school. It was a Christian ministry out of Ohio. I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to give them any more attention than they already receive. I had to sign a notarized contract stating I would not engage in sexual behavior, drink, smoke, do drugs. I would attend small groups, Bible studies multiple times a week. We put on a theater production as well. Traveled all over the country. If we broke our contract, we had to pay $2,000 in addition to the $2,000 we paid to participate. I won't elaborate too much, uh, but there was a great deal of grooming, pedophilia, and matchmaking going on. We were kids surrounded by adults who were supposed to protect us, but instead put us in bad situations. And it was always the girl's fault, and they failed us. I blame my parents a lot for what happened to me, so I can't imagine how the students at the lawn school felt. Thank you so much for informing us on topics like this, the suck, and the cult of the curious. Keep me going every day. Also, if you read this, shout out to my best friend in the whole world, who I turned into a huge time sucker. I love you, Mac. M-A-K. I'm assuming it's Mac. You're the best auntie to my little girl in the whole world. And to you, Lord Suckmaster, keep on sucking. And hail Lucifina. Thank you, Emma. And hello, Mac. 
Uh, you both sound awesome. Sorry you were abused by the people who were supposed to protect you, by people who pretended to be God's people. Wolves hiding in the light. Worst kind of wolves. Hope their uh, group gets exposed to the proper legal channels and shut down. Scrutinize who you let, you know, watch your kids meet sex. Don't be afraid to check in on anyone. You know, even if they're part of some religious group that you're part of, that doesn't mean they're above scrutiny ever. And now let's end on a positive troubled teen industry update. We have gotten some positive messages as well. It's like, you know, kids being helped in these behavioral institutes, parents of kids, the kids themselves. This is a, a sweet sucker who wishes to remain anonymous. He writes, Dear Dan Sucksworth, the third, first of his name, I love the podcast. I've been listening to the, uh, have been listening since the transgender suck. I'm currently listening to the lawn school suck and heard you bring up wilderness therapy programs as I am someone who works for one of those organizations. I wanted to quickly give you and possibly other suckers some insight on the current state of the industry. A little background about my position and how uh, at least my organization works. I've been a wilderness therapy guide. Think like a cross between an expedition guide and a dorm room residence uh, hall assistant or residence administrator, excuse me, for the last two years, which essentially means I take groups of kids between the ages of 13 and 17 struggling with mental health issues like depression, anxiety, Asperger's, high-functioning autism, substance abuse, et cetera, and bring them backpacking, mountain biking, rock climbing, as well as other outdoor activities. Uh, then once a week, the kids will meet up with their therapist, try to come up with some goals to work on for the upcoming week, as well as try to figure out solutions to problems back at home. Firstly, I do want to acknowledge that in the past, there has definitely been a bad track record when it comes to wilderness therapy, and that occasionally there are problems that still arise today. Though I'd like to point out how, just like Pennhurst and other mental health facilities back in the early days of adult mental health were horrible and abusive in the same similar ways as the Elan School was for teen mental health. Similarly, those industries have come leaps and bounds, uh, come up leaps and bounds to try to remedy and prevent those abuses and actually become successful in fulfilling their role in trying to help people's mental health. Though I do recognize that it has been a lot slower in the teen mental health realm, most likely due to the slow changing of ideas around what appropriate discipline looks like for adolescents. Like I said, though, there have been leaps and bounds in the last decade to try and prevent further abuses. For instance, the organization I work for prides itself on being a non-punitive program, meaning that there is absolutely no form of punishment. The closest thing that could be construed as punishment is the safety measure we take when one of the kids is threatening the safety of the rest of the group, if they're bullying, physically threatening. Uh, we have them do the activity that they're already going to do that week separately from the group for a week with two guides while they work with the therapist on a way they can safely reintegrate to the rest of the group. Additionally, staff are not allowed to be alone with kids, always need to make sure another staff is with an eyesight around the kids. Also, staff have to go through state and federal background checks, as well as guides have to go through a week-long orientation vetting process before they're officially hired and allowed to work with kids. I do believe we could definitely use more training in mental health before we start, but we attend weekly meetings on different mental health trainings, have found them useful. The kids are also allowed and encouraged to write weekly letters to their parents as well as phone calls. On top of that, while the students are in the program, the therapists work closely with the parents to figure out what the parents need to do better. Since let's face it, kids who are struggling emotionally usually don't have parents who are batting a thousand. True. There are still issues, and granted, not every kid has a great experience with the program. Due to it being an outdoor program, for them not being suited for being in the outdoors for such a long time, and the issue of a lot of their parents opting to send them to the program despite the kid not wanting to go. On the flip side, though, I have seen this program do wonders for lots of kids' mental health. I've gotten multiple letters from kids saying that this program has helped them immensely, as well as seeing the change that happens to them over the weeks that they are with us. As someone who seems to enjoy nature as much as I do, you can probably agree that getting into nature can be quite healing and perspective changing, not to mention adding therapy from actual therapists. Anyways, if you made it this far, I want to thank you for reading the poor spelling and grammar I've typed. There's a reason I work in the woods tonight. It's fucking, it's fucking great. I appreciate you calling out the ugly parts of the industry. Wouldn't expect any less of you. 
but I wanted to just add in my perspective and try to show that wilderness therapy is not the abusive, riddled industry it once was, and that it can actually produce a lot of good. If you want to look deeper into the program I work for, uh, it is Aspiro Wilderness Adventure. Thanks again for reading. P.S. If you do mention this in the suck, I would appreciate it. You don't need to use my real name. Just want to make sure to cover my bases when it comes to anything HIPAA-related stuff. Uh, you can refer to me um, as Big Thor. Well, Big Thor, I appreciate you sending this message. I did not spend enough time pointing out what a positive experience some of these facilities can be for struggling kids. Uh, thank you for doing that for me. And thank you for doing what you do. Uh, yes, I do love nature. It's so good to disconnect from tech, reconnect you know, with how we humans have lived for the overwhelming majority of our existence. And thanks to modern clothing, tech, and hiking equipment, you know, you can now enjoy nature in the safest way we've ever been able to enjoy it as a species. Best of both worlds. Good hike, good company, sunshine, and an incredible vista to look at combined with some solid therapy. That does sound like a wonderful way to heal and grow. Hail Nimrod to you, sir, and to all the wonderful therapists out there, those with degrees, those without, who become pop awards for those who didn't get to grow up with one like me. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to this Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, now go hug your grandpa and your grandma and then pinch them on the ass like Papa Ward used to pinch Grandma Stell. And then tell them to don't worry about the fuck word, you know, the, the F word, and, uh, and to keep on sucking. <laughs> a friend with weed is a friend indeed. I don't know what Buckhorn was so mad about. That's a fucking great friend.